Welcome to Game and Watch with Aaron and James, the show where we game games and talk about them and watch film and TV shows and talk about those as well. I am Aaron of the title of the show, joined as always by my host, James, also of the title of the show. Also of the title of the show. It'd be kind of odd if you weren't. Yeah. And this week we are talking about a, a fairly a fairly obscure game um, from yeah. the 90s. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it before this week, but... Uh, it's called Final Fantasy uh, VII. Yep, a little indie gem. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that would be yeah, Final Fantasy VII. Um, the, I mean, if you have, if you're listening to this, you've probably heard it. You know, played the game before. You've probably heard plenty of things said about the game. Um, you know, we're not going to baby you. And I think at this point, uh, if you are at all interested in games, interested in RPGs. Even if you haven't played this game, I think you've kind of absorbed a lot of it through osmosis yep. or through other sources like your Kingdom Hearts or various other you know multimedia properties. So I, I think it would be very hard to be a gamer uh, and be totally illiterate uh, about this game. Yeah, and if you know by chance you have not played the game, I think we would both give it a glowing recommendation. Uh, yeah, I, I think, well, I think I would give it a very glowing recommendation for 1998. I think today I would give it a thumbs up. Yeah. I mean, I, it all depends on your tolerance for, for old games and dated, you know, mechanics and such. Um, dated graphics usually don't bother me. I would say overall, um, dated mechanics do. Um, there'll be little things that we'll talk about that make the game just age a little poorly just from a gameplay perspective. Um, and just kind of comparing, you know, us playing JRPGs as adults compared to playing JRPGs as kids when we had more time. Yeah, but uh, who gifted this uh, to the world? Oh, this was gifted to us uh, from Square. Um, you know, not unless, uh, only if you had a Sony PlayStation, though. This was developed by Square for the Sony PlayStation, released in 1997. Um, notably, there is a remake that we'll also talk about that was released in 2020. Um, this game was written by, I'm going to hopefully you not pronounce this incorrectly, Kazushige Nojima um, and Tetsuya Nomura, the latter of which is infamous, but both of which are known for their work on other Final Fantasy games and the Kingdom Hearts series. This game is also directed by Yoshinori Kitasi. Uh, who also directed Final Fantasy VIII, uh, Final Fantasy X, and also my notes say Chrono Tigger, not Chrono Trigger, um, Chrono Tigger. The I would watch. I would watch that. Yeah, Win the, Winnie the Winnie the Pooh film from the Winnie the Pooh JRPG uh, yeah. universe. I mean, with the way Kingdom Hearts is going these days, I wouldn't be surprised. And I would say, most importantly, personally, is the music, which is by the one and only Nobuo Uematsu. Yes, yes. I think the music in particular, and we'll get to it when we kind of talk about what works and what doesn't uh, later on, but in general, I think part of the reason why the music from this game is so fondly remembered is that it was able to make that transition from uh, like an SNES sound palette to the PlayStation, which could uh, produce these big orchestral sounds that really weren't possible before, even though I think his actual compositions in earlier games are maybe just as good yeah um they really have the chance to to kind of 
get blown out in the way they they never could before. Yeah, Uematsu is an incredible composer. Um, I would highly recommend anything he's done prior to the Final Fantasy VII era, especially, I personally, my favorite probably being the music from Final Fantasy VI. Um, you know, but speaking of the things that the PlayStation could do, and actually, more importantly, the things that Nintendo could not do. Nintendo um, don't. Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah. So this game was originally designed as a 2D game for the Super Nintendo. It was later postponed, uh, but developed in 3D. They wanted to design it for Nintendo because that was kind of what Final Fantasy games have been coming out on before, as Sony had not entered the market. And I don't believe there were any Square games for Sega. Um, uh the choice of game cartridges, uh, Nintendo stuck with that. They decided they wanted to stick with that after the SNES and carry it on to the N64 era. And that choice, uh, instead of using CDs, would have limited Square way too much in terms of storage capacity. So they decided to develop exclusively for the PlayStation, which this game was actually later released for the PC as well in order to increase um, exposure to fans. Uh, this game cost about $64 million to make, which is really expensive for the time. And very notably, the localization of this game was a complete disaster. It was handled internally by Square. This isn't something that I was able to appreciate uh, for a while, um, especially as a kid, um, in that we really weren't getting the, the translation that was intended. Uh, it's not the very proper translation of what was originally in Japanese. I haven't played the game in Japanese, but I know now I'm currently in the midst of learning it. Um, very, very new at it. So I'm not going to profess to be an expert or anything, but I can already kind of see how due to the inherent differences between English and Japanese, how it'd be very hard to localize games and how it could, how easily it could go wrong. Well, and to, I mean, this is considerably a more ambitious effort uh, from Square and they wanted to make a huge, huge splash for Sony and for the PlayStation and Sony wanted that very badly uh, as well. So I, I think for them, you know, knocking the translation out of the park was probably low on the priority list. Yes. Um, I think it's definitely serviceable. Um, I, sure. I, I don't really know much about the Japanese translation, but uh, what we get here, there are some kind of quirky, weird turns of phrase and things like that. Um, but it's it's definitely not it's it's not um you know it's it's not unplayable oh absolutely unplayable. and i don't mean to to imply that it is you know unreadable or just sounds stupid i mean there i would say that there are probably moments where if you are shaking your head saying oh that's so weird um that that character said that it's probably because it wasn't translated exactly as it should have been um but you know, it, it, again, it's not it's not something that makes the game unplayable or, or odd. I don't think it really negatively impacts the game. But it was a disaster in the sense that it was just not perfectly well translated. Um, and then one of the either the directors, or the producers, I know from what I understand, his mother died either before or during the production of the game. Uh, and so he incorporated themes of kind of life going on, and you know the dead people dead kind of stay with us. And mm -hmm. that's kind of where the live stream came from. So I know that influenced uh, the creation of the game. Um, that's really all I know. I don't know what kind of game it was bef before that. Um, but I know that was definitely a, a large inspiration. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not sure exactly, you know, from iteration to iteration, like what, or what kind of what process they went through to, to end up where they were now. But I do, from what I've read, I do think that they kind of always had this focus on, a 
and we'll definitely go into this a little bit more detail, a more cinematic experience. Um, the PlayStation's hardware you know, enables them to do a lot more and they wanted to take full advantage of it. I think they were kind of nearing something like this when they got to Final Fantasy VI, which you could argue is a pretty ambitiously dark, you know, with some humor, but it, it's, a, it's a very epic game. I mean, I, they all are, but I, there was something about, you can kind of look from five to seven, and see a transition. Um, of course, you know, again, the, the hardware allowing this to be more cinematic, the 3D nature, the pre-rendered backgrounds they used here. Um, but they, I think they always had a goal to keep a more, a world that was maybe a little bit more close to the world of Final Fantasy VI than earlier Final Fantasy games, a little bit less of that like high fantasy element, right? And, and, and more of the I don't, I hate you to use the word steampunk because it's not really that, but a little more futuristic, a little more machinery and technology. How would you put it? Yeah, it's really tough because I think six actually blends those two kind of ideas very well. Six has a lot of high fantasy ideas like kingdoms and kings and castles and things like that, but also infuses it with a kind of futurism that, I, I really enjoy. I think this continues that trend mm-hmm. and the trend would, would continue kind of in eight. Um, yeah. I don't know what you would, it's not steampunk. I would say it's, yeah, it's, um, not. it's not quite sci-fi either. It's like, it's like f- futurism, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a lot of elements of like times gone by of you know people you know farm farming to make a living and like people don't have as much of a reliance on technology not that people don't farm to make a living now but you know what i mean like there's a there's so many there's people who live a very low-tech life um even though there's the existence of a lot of technology in the world um and some you know characters have you know little dabbles of tech in their lives but it, it's I don't know. It's it's hard to it's hard to put into words. Yeah, it's almost like uh like an alternate industrial revolution took place on yeah. this world uh, to ours, and we're seeing you know maybe a generation or two removed from that. Uh, but for them, that revolution was uh, Mako slash Mako energy, um, which which we'll kind of talk about when we get to the plot. Yeah, and uh, you know, kind of building off the more cinematic. Um, I don't know if bombastic is the right word, yeah, kind of nature of this game. This game was very heavily advertised as a kind of an experience. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know if you, how well you remember the advertising and how, the frequency of advertising. I don't I think, do. I, I do. I, if you had asked me, you know, maybe a couple months ago to really recall the advertisements, I don't know if I would have been able to say anything directly, but I just have, I have images of like posters, maybe just like these like short flashes of like and commercials in my mind that if I were to watch them again now, I'm sure they would, it would all come flooding back. Yeah, I, I do remember. I remember vivid, uh, like vividly commercials with this like stern male voice saying things like, you've never experienced like a world like this. And then showing all the FMVs, Sephiroth in the fire, like intro, you know, all that stuff. It was everywhere in gaming magazines. Um, the only thing I can, and thinking about it nowadays is kind of crazy. Like it, th- there was a huge saturation of advertising for it in pop culture. And the last thing I remember kind of like that and not for stuff like Fortnite, which is kind of everywhere, but is more of like a casual, like pick up a play game is I remember before Skyrim came out, I remember being in, uh, in the loop uh, and seeing a giant billboard for Skyrim. And I'm like, 
that's kind of crazy that mm. there's a billboard for this, like what I would think would be kind of this weird niche, uh, you know, Western RPG game. Obviously Skyrim is enormous and huge and big, but that was kind of the last time I can remember, uh, you know, like a role-playing game, like a kind of more fantasy-esque game getting, you know, nationwide media coverage. And again, besides Fortnite, besides say Call of Duty, besides Madden, you know, those kind of more broadly appealing games. Yeah. And the fact that it came out for the immensely popular Sony PlayStation in the kind of the, you know, the dawn of the 3D gaming era um, and also pushed, it was more technical, you know, uh, graphically advanced than anything that had come out for the PlayStation prior to that. I mean, that, that certainly helped. Um, it was something not to be missed and people did not miss it. Um, a lot of people played this game and loved it and critics loved it as well. And I would say the points of criticism about the game are pretty similar to what I'm sure we will talk about. Yeah. And it's kind of tricky because you go back and you read reviews of uh, Mario 64 or Final Fantasy 7 and they didn't really have anything to compare it to yep. um, because games were making that transition into, into the 3d space. And that, that was all new. Um, so it's kind of, and maybe you'll share this uh, impression with me, but it was almost like people were so blown away by this new ability to play or way to play or the way things looked that there was less critical analysis of it and kind of more sitting back going like, wow, like how did they do that? Mm-hmm. And obviously as the generations would grow older, like by the end of the PlayStation and Nintendo 64 eras, you know, people were savvy enough to look at a game like, you know, Army Men, Sarge's Heroes and be like, <laughs> yeah, it's garbage, right? Yeah. But if that had been a launch title, I think everyone would have lost their minds and I think it would have a very different reputation today. That's an interesting point. I, I won't necessarily say I share it because I'd have to think about that for a little bit, but I will say nostalgia does go a long way um, in terms of like how the game has endured. And I will also say that I may, I might bring a unique perspective and this is probably a good transition to talking about our experiences with the game. And I might have a more of a unique perspective in that. I'm not sure about you, but I did not play this game right when it came out. I watched friends play it maybe close to when it came out. I don't know how, if I have like the timing right i just don't think i played the game myself in like 1997 or even 1998 but i watched people play it um so i i experienced pretty much all of this game through a combination of friends playing it and my brother playing it when it came out on pc and i remember being totally captivated now and then kind of the reason why i wasn't jumping to agree with you before is that i didn't play it myself and I do think that back then when games were kind of at the dawn of the 3D era and and kind of in the situation that you described playing a game yourself was certainly a a massive part of the experience watching it was one thing but I think playing it at least for me maybe I'm being a little dramatic and emotional about gaming but I think it was really powerful to play a game like this yourself and when I did first play this game myself I would say that despite the fact that 3D games have been out for a while, and I think maybe the time that, that happened might've been close to like, it was after 2000, I think, when I, when I fully sat down and I played this whole game myself. Um, I think that it was, it was pretty, pretty 
powerful, despite the fact that since then, you know, other games, including other Final Fantasy games had come out with better graphics and improvements to the mechanics and, and all that, all that other nice stuff to love. I still think that I was massively affected by this game in a very positive way. Yeah, and I, I had a different experience. I didn't play it immediately when it came out, but my brother uh, did. And I was the little brother, so I almost never got to play games. I would watch you know, my brothers play them. So I did watch my brother play uh, this game quite a bit, and I really, really enjoyed that. Um, but then, because he was a sexy teen at the time, he would go out on Friday and Saturday nights and I was a loser, you know, like eight year old and I was uh, at home. And so I started my own game file. Uh, and from there, I uh, played it kind of along with him. He finished it before me and I finished it probably, you know, like that summer, not too far after, but I was blown away by it. You're absolutely right. I think uh, playing it is, is playing any game is a different experience than just watching it. I loved it. Uh, I love the music. I love the, the art style. I'll say art style. I won't necessarily say how it looks because we'll talk about that. Um, it's yeah. very poorly. And even then I was like, oh, um, but, but I still loved it. And it really affected me and really set me on the path of playing JRPGs and the Final Fantasy series for a while. Yep. And it was kind of after this that I learned about emulation. I went back, I downloaded uh, an SNES emulator on uh, our family computer. I played Final Fantasy IV, Chrono Trigger. Uh, I kind of dabbled in uh, Final Fantasy VI until I went back you know, a little bit later and fully played and enjoyed that. And I would say it had a pretty big impact on my taste in games. Kind of from there on out, I was very into, into RPGs and fantasy and this kind of thing. Um, I've since then branched out, but that was definitely uh, my jam. Nice. as a result of this like i i would say that i similarly had this kind of really spurred my um it's weird it, you know so i, I differ from you in a, a little bit and I, and i maybe this is just me saying that i was I've, i was a i was a jrpg poser for a while oh uh, but I do tell but i so I did not play a lot of these JRPGs myself. I watched a lot of other people play them. I remember going to my friend Matt's house to watch he and his brother play Final Fantasy X. Um, my brother played Final Fantasy X. I've watched my brother play Tales of Symphonia, Bait and Kaidos. I really loved JRPGs, but I think that I loved so many other games that I did not feel like I had time to fit JRPGs into my life. And so most of the JRPGs that I played were those that where it either came out for or reported to Game Boy Advance or the DS. And I, or I guess even Game Boy Color. Um, but so I didn't play all of these JRPG games myself in full. And sometimes I played some and, st and stopped them, like played half the game. And then for one reason or another, put it down. I don't remember why. So I actually, there was like a resurgence of JRPGs in my life starting probably right after I finished college. And I started playing a lot more of them or replaying, replaying some um, like Final Fantasy VII um, or playing some for the first time, like Final Fantasy IX. Um, played a lot of JRPGs. And I would say I'm still kind of in that phase. I have like a very strong... And I, but I always have, and even before I started replaying them myself, I had a, almost like kind of an obsession with games that I hadn't even completed myself. Like I, I was, it, it, I adored the scores to so many of these games like Bait and Kaidos and Tales of Symphonia and Chrono Trigger. And I've, I've 
listen to their scores in, in the Final Fantasy games so many years before I played any of them myself. And and I will admit, and we'll you know, we'll be sure we'll cover it at some point. Um, I, I've never played Chrono Trigger still to this day, despite how in love with the score I am. Um, I think some of its songs are some of the best JRPG songs ever written. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I had, I had an interesting experience in that way. I, I didn't experience it myself, but the, and I think that actually goes to say how strong the impact of that kind of like JRPG culture was. Um, it wasn't even, it didn't always even resonate with all of my friend groups too. You know, this was, it was just very strong with me, with my brother, um, with some friends of mine. And I'm just, you know, I'm still kind of in the midst of almost catching up on some JRPGs um, and then replaying others that I am deeply fond of, including this one. Yeah. And I think uh, going along with that, something that um, what you were saying triggered in me is realizing that the success of this game kind of triggered this real boom in JRPGs. Not that they didn't exist before and weren't fairly prevalent. I mean, the SNES has tons and tons of JRPGs, but I think the success of this game led to them getting uh, obviously more kind of public notice, but also bigger budgets, bigger production values, kind of everyone was trying to play catch up with this game. And uh, you can kind of see the, the, the results of that now, even still, uh, like, you know, RP, JRPGs, especially everything is huge and dramatic and melodramatic, which it always was in the Final Fantasy series, but this really, really opened the door for really mainstream um, kind of eyes looking at this genre that hadn't before. Yeah, and I would say the only the only downside I think to how late I got as deep into JRPGs as I did is as as adult people. You just don't have as much time to pour into like, you know, anywhere from 40 to usually more often like 60 to 100 hour games. Yet, I also became more of a completionist than ever before in the last 10 years of my life. I was always kind of a completionist. I have lines. Um, but, you know, in replaying this game, I got every character up to level 99. You know, uh, I, I think I got every single achievement uh, in the game um, because why not? Which is actually kind of funny, too, because I, in the inverse, I used to be that way when I was a kid. Uh, and now as an adult, I'm like, ah, I skated by and saw the credits. I'm putting this down maybe forever. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am not a completionist. I definitely, you know, if I play a game, I like looking up all those things. Um, and there was another podcast that they made a really good point. The cheat code to win any game is to just watch the ending on YouTube. <laughs> um, so you you always have that available to you, yeah. but uh, when I when I love a game now, especially JRPG, as as you said, I, I'm an adult. I just don't have as much time to play those games. I love to, but I'm not going to 100% a game when I have a backlog of you know 50 games waiting for me. I absolutely look into all that kind of completionist stuff, but I I am okay letting other people do the completing for me and me living vicariously through them. Yeah, and sometimes I am as well. You know, it, it, it always just depends. But yeah, I would say kind of in going back, something that stayed consistent between going playing the game for the first time and then coming back to it in recent years, I, I find certain elements of JRPGs overwhelming. I mean, it, sometimes it's, it's, it's in a good way, but there are so many di- different kinds of armor. And I guess this could be RPGs in general, but there's so many different types of armor and different, like depending on the, the, you know, the job system, or and I guess in this game, the material system, depending on the game, I think sometimes they can be daunting. And I always think 
or I think that some JRPGs don't do a great job of explaining their systems, or at least don't explain their systems well, or help you realize their usefulness until later in the game. And I don't always want my hand held by a game, sometimes quite the opposite, like Dark Souls. Um, but sometimes I just, you know, th there was an overwhelming nature. It was intimidating. Some JRPGs were intimidating to me when I was, when I was younger. And as I'm older, I have more patience with learning those systems if I think that the game will be worth it. Other times I'm just like, fuck this. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you would like to talk about mechanics. Uh, and I was going to suggest we do we talk about mechanics and direction and then the characters and the arts. And then the, we'll save the plot for kind of the end of the overview because it's it's thick and beefy. Yeah, yeah. I can talk about the mechanics. Or I mean, I guess I was going to talk about the mechanics and the directing style sort of. Because this yeah, is... Yeah, yeah. Let's, okay. let's go for it. Like I mentioned, this was a... The goal was to make this game as cinematic as possible. And so it kind of combines pre-rendered backgrounds with like polygons rendered on top. Um, and then also, you know, as during your regular playthrough, and then there are real-time cutscenes in which, again, you have automated movement of polygons on pre-rendered backgrounds or FMVs, full motion video for anyone who doesn't know. Um, and it really, really works. Uh, I mean, I, it, or at least it really, really worked. I mean, granted the art direction or, you know, the, some of the choices or maybe some of the limitations that were given to them, you know, they couldn't have as well-realized character models. In fact, you, would, you could argue that these are just blobs of Play-Doh. They're, yeah, they're really horrible. Uh, they look like they were constructed out of Dorito chips. Um, I think the actual art direction, I think the character designs are very cool looking. Yeah. I think if you look at the concept art for any area or any character, I think they're really good. Yes. Um, and I think the, the hand painted or are they hand painted or the backgrounds are static. Um, and I think for the most part, they look pretty good. It's just anything that actually moves on the screen uh, especially out in the field, just looks really bad. Any any like main character, animal, like even even like guns and items are very kind of gross polygons. Like I, they're, they're 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 very like abstracted. Like a yeah. like a Shinra guard will be pointing a rifle, but it's literally just like a cylindrical tube. Yes, and and you know it's funny because back then. Even again, even after I had already played games with better graphics than this, when I kind of revisited it and played it all myself, I I still it, it charms me. I it's it's ugly, it really is. But I I still have I think it's very charming still, even though I I, I always make fun of it because um, it is objectively gross looking. It hasn't aged well. Yeah, it's a cilantro thing. Some people really love it. Some people really don't. Even yeah. as a kid, I I I like the I think the the. Uh, battle uh what am i trying to say uh polygons like the the battle versions of all the characters yes i was just look, about to say yeah they look better they don't look great but they they look better and those i i'm fond of but it's all the field like polygonal stuff like yeah. characters and things like that that i even as a kid i was like this is ugly and the the transition from that to battle to then fmvs where each one has its own kind of visual style was sort of jarring. Yeah. And as the Final Fantasy games go on, uh, they smooth that out quite a bit. Uh, this is the only one where it's that weird and abrupt when they make those shifts. Yeah, and, and speaking of the battle system, um, a lot of the focus of the development of this game was on getting the battle system right, although they did utilize a system that I think they developed for Final Fantasy IV, 
correct me yeah, if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, the um, active yeah. active time now. Yeah, and it, its use was to promote sort of a continuous flow for battles, not have too much waiting time in between, but also to kind of also promote this this idea of urgency and excitement during battles. I, as someone, this was the first active time battle RPG I'd ever played, I believe. Um, unless Quest 64 was an active time battle system, but I actually don't remember. We don't talk about that. <laughs> we won't talk about that here. No, we're going to do that game someday. Oh, uh, we're going to suffer through it. Maybe together. We'll just play it together. Um, uh, and, and I remember that being pretty overwhelming. I was like, what the hell is going on? I'm, you know, my, you know, I'm not used to, you know, Pokemon attacking me while I'm trying to choose my attack. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the battle system holds up well, and I really enjoy battling in this game. Um, there's some small elements of the battle system that I don't think have aged as well, but I was, I'm going to save that for when we talk about um, things that we don't think work. Yeah, and really quickly, I, I don't think you can talk about the battle system without talking about the materia system. Exactly. Because unlike other Final Fantasy games where ca- characters would either inherently have magic and get more magic by leveling up, or in the case of Six, where by equipping espers, you, you learn magic over time. Uh, in this game, all magic is interchangeable at all times with any character because the magic itself resides in materia, which are these little um, spherical crystals of you know the life stream the planet's power magic essentially yeah and those are able to level up uh, in and of themselves independent of which character they're equipped to um and it essentially controls everything in battle outside of uh of simple fight command and items so everything summons magic spells healing spells uh mugging um anything you can think of is is tied to these and I, and I called it overwhelming before, but I, I should clarify it and say that sometimes these systems in JRPGs are as compli- complicated as you allow them to be. I mean, they are complicated. They can be complicated to a certain degree. And there's a certain degree that you are essentially required to utilize them in order to win the game. But you don't have to get everything out of the materia system that it allows you to get. And, and I don't mean just you don't have to use certain materia. You don't have to combine certain materia sometimes. You don't, I mean... You don't have to use the materia even that the game expects you to use in order to beat a certain boss, depending on the boss. When you get to the ultimate weapons uh, or the, the ruby and emerald weapons, you kind of have to be maxed out in level and use the right combinations of materia if you want to have a fighting chance. Um, but yeah, the, the, the system's going to be as complicated as you want them to be. And sometimes when I play this game, uh, when I replay it, I settle on kind of just a set of materia for certain people and I just leave it. Uh, the only time I ever switch is if someone, if I'm just trying to level one particular material up. Well, I think what this system allows is something that I think uh, really, really good RPG systems allow for, which is you can comfortably play the game and experience challenge. But if you really feel like min-maxing, you can completely break the system. Yes. So Final Fantasy Tactics has that, which we will absolutely cover someday. Yep. Uh, Final Fantasy VIII has that. A, a lot of Final Fantasy games uh, have systems that do that. Uh, and I think the best JRPGs do. So you could comfortably pick up Final Fantasy Seven, really not have a ton of experience with JRPGs, kind of notice that the machine monsters are weak to, to lightning, yep. buy some lightning materia, equip those to your characters, move on to a different area of the game, readjust your materia for that area, make it through, um, and kind of play the entire game and beat the game that way. On the other end of the scale, you can have someone who uh, gets every single materia, uh, maxes them all out, knows all the best you know combinations to use, 
all of that. And then, you know, I, I've done that. And you beat Sef- the final boss, say for Sephiroth, with one attack and yep. the game ends. Um, and so it, it's really, it's up to you how deeply you want to go in it, like you mentioned. And I think it's a good user-friendly system that also allows for replayability and also allows for both new players and more experienced players to experience the game and get kind of different things out of it. Totally agree. Should we talk about the characters? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> let's let's generally talk about the art direction and yeah, sure. the, the the main man behind the art direction, and then we can kind of get to the specific characters. Okay. Well, I mean, the art direction aside from I'm trying to think. Uh, how would you put it? Nomura. Nomura. <laughs> Nomura yeah. ease. Nomura ease. Yeah. This is this is no, this is baby Nomura, which I I think I'm okay with. Yeah, it's it, you know he wasn't yet unleashed onto the world. No. Yeah. What's, um. You know, and and we we've talked about it. The art style, mainly just in general for the world, for the backgrounds, is as we said this kind of blend between uh, like pre-industrial or beginning industrial era yeah. and full-on industrial era kind of stuff with some interesting sci-fi things thrown in. Uh, the monsters feature a lot of Final Fantasy staples, uh, but also introduce some kind of newer creatures that all kind of fall within that spectrum as well. You have some very traditional high fantasy uh, monsters like dragons uh, and, you know, goblins and things like that. And then you get to the other end where you have these weird like techno futurist um, like bio creatures. Um, so it, it's kind of of a piece. Yeah. And this game's style is influential and it it takes inspiration itself from so many different you know anime and manga that came before i mean there you have character you know you have your classic anime character design in crazy looking sometimes with badass at the same time looking clothes you know absurdly thin characters holding absurdly large heavy weapons anime hair as a kid as a kid did you want anime hair i did I saw I did. Klaus hair and I was like, I, how do I have that? How do I, I did? I didn't, but I do have a theory about the large weapons and and why they were done that way. Oh yeah, and here it is. Um, especially if you look at Final Fantasy uh, seven and eight, eight came after. Uh, Nomura designed the characters, but I think he was less involved in eight. I think the reason for the giant weapons in seven, and they are all giants. So Cloud has the Buster Sword, which is massive. Yuffie has her uh, shuriken, which are also huge. Sid has his spear. Barrett has a very big gun. Like all of the weapons are very big. And I was thinking about it. And I think that's the result of the transition between the SNES and the PlayStation 1. Because if you go back and look at SNES Final Fantasies or a lot of JRPGs, the character sprites in battle are pretty small. And then when a character swings a sword, it cuts to a different sprite of whatever sword is equipped. And that sprite is like oftentimes as large as the character is. But the reason for that is so that you can see that they're using a sword or an ax or what have you. If they scale those weapons down to be appropriately sized, they'd be like a few pixels tall and you wouldn't really be able to tell what it was. So I I think, and if you look at Final Fantasy VIII, all of those character, all of those characters and their weapons are all perfectly proportioned to each other. Things kind of change in nine because it's like a chibi style. But I think Nomura, maybe it wasn't his fault. Maybe he was just trying to replicate that style. Um, but I think a lot of like video games and anime have just kind of gone with that, um, and that's kind of where we are today. 
Okay. I, you know, I never thought about it like that, but that I love that. I, that's great. That makes total sense. And it, and it, at first I just kind of thought it was silly. Now it just still makes a little more sense and it's silly. I mean, it's both. It's yeah. both. I would love to see these characters, especially the battle sprites uh, with proportionately sized weapons. Cause I think it would still probably look pretty good. Yeah. I mean, we won't, I don't know if we were planning on talking about it that much, but you know, there was like a full rendered uh, 3d animated movie that came out in the mid aughts called final fantasy advent children, a sequel to this game that had all the characters that you know and love redesigned to look like normal people sort of still with that kind of anime style and they're absurdly large weapons and say what you will about that movie. It looks pretty fucking cool. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, now we're just going to have to do that on some episode next week. Yeah. We're going to be doing Final Fantasy yeah. Advent Children. The podcast is over. Yeah. Um, should we talk about characters, specific characters? Yes. Uh, you Not like any him. of them are really iconic or anything like no, that. No, no, no. Most iconic no one... characters of all video games yeah no one knows much about these guys uh we have cloud strife who is the main character he is the guy with the aforementioned buster sword he has the spiky blonde anime hair um in terms of design i think it's a very simple cool design if not the most practical but that's anime uh he's wearing these like baggy pants with uh suspenders and then a sleeveless turtleneck and then kind of this like uh piece of armor on his shoulder and then these gauntlets um and he's a sad sad boy He's just said, I was gonna just gonna say he comes off as so moody and sullen. And this could be the first of a couple of things. I, I don't, do you want me to talk about the remake as we go, or do you want me to? Because I, I, I could do a segment on it. I'm not gonna do a whole lot of let's uh, it, let's do but, let's do a segment. Okay. Yeah. I'll just say that the remake leans really heavy uh, heavily into Cloud's moodiness. Um, maybe that's just because there's voice acting in the remake, so you feel it more. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, and I, I think part of it is there's just so much more dialogue in the remake, whereas the, the actual amount of dialogue in this game, when you really think about it, like if you were to script it out, probably isn't actually that much. Um, but yeah, he's he's a sad boy. Uh, he is a former soldier, and soldier in this world means something different. It's like soldier with a capital S. They're kind of the elite fighting force. For, and yes. a capital O in an L. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're the elite fighting force for this kind of omni corporation called Shinra uh, that owns the city Midgar and kind of has uh, its fingers in all the pies of the world. Um, he is our main character for most of the game. Um, and I think uh, I think part of maybe the only thing I find charming about the, the gross field sprites is each of them has a couple different gestures that they yes. do. Um, and I do think that for the most part, they're all pretty cute. Um, I think Cloud, his like where he flicks his hair back is kind of cute. I think his shrug is kind of cute. Um, it, it lets you kind of know, like, I don't, he is mopey, but I think those little touches uh, in the original game don't drown you in his mopiness. He's yeah. just kind of like this, like, ah, whatever kind of guy. Um, and so I, 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 I like it. That's the that's the one thing that I like. Yeah, I do too. I agree tell, with everything you said. Tell us, uh, tell us about some of the other characters. Well, there's there's Tifa, um, and I and I not trying to you know offend, um, but Tifa is pretty shallow of a character. Uh, not in the way she looks at uh, other people, but the fact that this, I, Tifa is an unfortunate embodiment of booby Japanese characters. Would you say? Yeah, I I would say she's like the mom of the group, kind of. 
Um, they don't really lean into that enough, but they, I think that's they don't. kind of what her function is. And that's what the that's the unfortunate part about this. I mean, please fill in gaps if I if I'm missing something here. But like when when I replayed the game a couple of years ago, and I when you know the remake helps with this, I think it does Tifa a lot of favors. Um, but I think the original creation of Tifa they started with the character design first, and then just tried to figure out more stuff for her to do. I mean, she she is very much involved in Cloud's life. I mean, she, she factors into the plot heavily. I just don't think they did enough with her and it's unfortunate. Yeah, I will say I have a fun little anecdote about this. Uh, when I was a kid and I was playing Final Fantasy VII, my mom would, you know, peek in from time to time to see what I was doing and playing because the living room was right off the dining room of the kitchen. And one day we were in the car and she goes, I want you to stop playing that game you've been playing. <laughs> and I was like, Final Fantasy? I was like, Why? And she's like, I, I saw in the news, I know all about it. It's got that girl with the guns and she she she's not appropriately dressed. Yep. And I finally realized that she was talking about Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, and then realized that she saw Tifa. And for being a woman in her mid-40s and the 90s, knowing nothing about video games, I don't blame her for mixing up the two. Yeah. I, I just think either. it's I just think it's very funny that she <laughs> she saw like a, a panic news story about Tomb Raider and she was like, oh, you gotta stop playing this game. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say in contrast to that, I think that the character of Aerith, uh, also known as Eris, or by some people something completely different she's aries she'll always be aries to not me. not to me and i'm like the god of war i'm gonna cringe every time you say that uh i think Aerith is a much better developed character and is a character that i from the very beginning even before i learned about uh what happens to her character um i'm very invested in her uh, she's I, very yeah she's very charming and cutesy and again i think it's those little like sprite animations like a yeah. little like giggle animation yeah again i think it's i think it's a difference between, and sorry i don't mean to we can save the remake talk for later but yeah i think no, the, no the remake the parts that i played you don't get that like sense out of her you get that she's very like warm and sweet and nice but she's not like cute or cutesy in the remake she's really cute and cutesy in this I actually, so I, I disagree about there. I think that she is equally as cute, if not cuter. Um, and like, it just cutesy, I mean to say like in the remake. And I also think that they, she's, she's an even stronger character in the remake too. There's so I think some of the strongest elements of that game are the voice acting and, you know, direction of her interactions with cloud and other characters. Yeah, and we should say uh, Ares is uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, God. Ares uh, is a uh, flower saleswoman, I guess you would say, and she is one of the last of an ancient race called the Ketra or the Setra. I say Ketra, um, and she is being raised in Midgar, but she is kind of the spiritual center of the party. She can kind of commune with the planet, yes, and she will be very plot important later. Very, very. And I'd say that they, she is a, a fascinating and fun character from the moment you meet her, even if you don't know that she's going to be part of your uh, party when the first time you meet her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And moving on, I think if Tifa's the mom, I would say Barrett is probably the dad of the group. 
He is the dad of the group. Yes. Yeah. And also, I, I, I actually, I wish I had done more research into this and there's probably someone much wiser than me could, who could, including you, who could weigh in on this, but I'm not sure if like the racism behind this uh, or in, in kind of inherent in his character, like came from the localization or if it was just kind of from its original design. Yeah, I mean, it's, listen, you and I are not qualified to talk about race theory or race this is issues, true. but I, I will say there's one read of Barrett where he's the stereotypical angry black man. Yes. But I do, and I think that's valid, and I think anyone who's playing the game and that's their, that's what they come away from his character with, I, I would not argue with them. I think you can, you can definitely draw that, but I do think they do on top of that he is like the dad, like he, he, he has a daughter, Marlene, who he kind yes. of adopted. Um, very sweet relationship. Very sweet relationship. He is very concerned about this group that he's in charge of. Um, he, he is, ang- you know, he's the stereotypical angry black guy who like flies off the handle and he gets really mad and he, you know, swears a lot and yeah. um, is quick to pick a fight and stuff like that. But I do think that he has more character than just that going on. Absolutely. I think like if Tifa's the mom, I think he's the dad. I ship them together, even though no one else does. I actually do too. I, I never shipped Tifa and Cloud. Um, no, even when I was a fan no. of Tifa, because I was a young, stupid uh, horn dog boy, um, I still I, I liked uh, Cloud Nareth, and I I I, w- I would say maybe I shipped Tifa and Barrett. I just kind of liked them together in general, and I loved Barrett. Uh, I always loved Barrett. Um, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. He is very much a father figure. And I think that he has some of the best dialogue in the game, especially when he is showing deeply deep, you know, deep concern for his team and is very passionate about the motives behind what Avalanche is doing. He, well, um, he also, he has some really, when he gets angry, he has some really great, like, fuck you lines or like he, when he, when he, when he tells people off, they're Those, usually pretty good. The kind of lines that were, if you like saw it in a movie theater, you would like get up and want to cheer. Yeah, but like also borderline black exploitation y. Um, a little bit. I, you can't help but wonder if they just watched, yeah, some black exploitation films and and kind of made a uh, did some of the dialogue at Frank Fresh like, off of Yeah, uh, like I don't know, very, very, very charitably, you could call it an homage. I don't think it was. No. Uh, I and I, I, I think his anger and his swearing works 10 billion times more than Sid's, who I really can't stand, but we'll get to him. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah. Well, would you want to tell us about Sid or do you want to talk about? Yeah, Rick? we can, we can talk about Sid cause we'll get to the order in which you meet them. When we talk about the plot, but sure. Sid is a foul mouthed sky pirate. Uh, well not pirate, but uh, airman airship yeah. man slash aspiring astronaut. Um, and his tragic backstory involves like something in plots that enrages me where there's like one tiny piece of information that one character misconstrues or doesn't understand and then that informs who they are for the rest of their lives and you know shapes them and ruins them uh and it's really annoying and his dream i would say the only kind of redeeming quality to sid is he you do get the sense from his character that he does have this really big dream he does want to go into space and that kind of comes to fruition and that's kind of neat but he's just um like every final fantasy has had kind of the the Setzer, the Ferris, the kind of mouthy, uh, you know, world weary, you know, kind of gambler airship kind of guy uh, yeah. or la- or lady in Ferris's case. And that's who he is. And it's just kind of a tire trope. Uh, and in his localization, he swears constantly, but it's all like bleeped out with yeah. uh, symbols. 
and it's like funny the first couple times but then you're like okay like I roll uh I never played with Sid my brother played with Sid in every playthrough of the game and loves mm-hmm. Sid I I, th- I just he grates on me I think his character is pr- pretty flat and shallow he gets a little bit of development but even after the development happens he's still a pretty big dick yeah um not my favorite he uses spears in battle which okay I, I actually like him a lot of uh, gameplay wise. Um, I would, I would agree with you. His shit kind of got old after a little bit. Um, but I actually, in the last two times I played the game, I used pretty much the same party for end game, um, which was cloud Yuffie and um, Sid. Okay. Well uh, tell us about Yuffie. Yuffie. It, would you say that Yuffie is one of the least fleshed out characters in the game? Um, No, I would say no. No. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I just don't remember as much of her story as well as I should. Uh, she's, I guess, would you, yeah, you call her a ninja? Yeah. Like ninja, ninja in training, thief. like thief. She's definitely like the thief class. You know, if we were to pick classes for everyone, she's like the thief ninja. Yeah. And she's the daughter of the Wu-Tai clan uh, who I believe uh, have been in constant struggle with Shinra, right? Yeah, it's like it's touched upon here and there or in passing in the original. The remake makes things much more explicit uh, with that. In the original game, you kind of have to go out of your way, literally, uh, to even recruit her or do her side quests. Also, we should mention that Yuffie and Wutai in general are much more Eastern themed. They bear resemblance to more like ancient Japan, whereas Midgar and kind of the rest of the world is uh, more like has more European architecture sensibilities. We should also note that you, the entire character of Yuffie and, and her side quests are optional. Yeah, you don't have to get her. Uh, the way you do get her is a little weird and obscure. You kind of meet her as an enemy in the forest. Yeah. And then if you defeat her, you have to answer certain questions correctly and she will join you. Um, she also steals things from you if you get them wrong. You do have the opportunity to try this many times while you're in that area. Yeah. So if you screw up and you don't have a strategy guide, you can kind of figure it out. Uh, if you move on, though, I believe she is gone forever. Yeah, if you move past a certain point, I think it's after you do one of the four Condor things or something like that. I, I don't I don't remember. I, I, I definitely missed her the first time and maybe even the first two times I played this game. Um, yeah, she's, she's definitely like the brash thief uh, with a heart of gold. Uh, also, like a weird quirk is her air sickness or seasickness. Yes, which is yeah. kind of funny. Which is kind of fun. But if, you know, she's like the, she's like the Naruto part one, part one Naruto of the crew. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then you've got, let's do Vincent Valentine. How about Vincent Valentine, which is uh, another optional name. character. Yeah, Another yeah. optional character that you find yeah. sleeping in a coffin, right? In a basement. Yes. 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 <laughs> in the Shinra mansion. Uh, yeah. You have to find a way to unlock the room he's in. And then he, uh, you talk to him and then I think you have to leave and he gets up and decides to join you. Something like that. Yeah. And I believe it, I, so I should probably admit, I mean, I, and I don't know if you did either, but you might know the, remember the game better than I did. I did not replay the game for this episode. I, so I'm doing a lot of this on memory. Um, some things on wiki, I believe that he was a genetically engineered or genetically modified um, soldier that was not soldier with all caps, but just soldier in general who is assigned to guard a scientist, um, but then was kind of viciously experimented on and given eternal life by Professor Hojo. 
Yeah, but to even really find out any of that, you have to go to like a really obscure place near the end of the game. And then the information yeah. you get, you're kind of like, what? Um, because that's sort of what it is. Um, I think he works a lot better the less you know about him. Um, I think I just as no less. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and, but he's cool. He's cool. He uses he's guns. Very cool um, character design. Very reminiscent of, of a vampire. He's very pale. He has black hair. He wears these tattered red, red capes and things. And he has a cool kind of arm, like gauntlet claw. Uh, very cool. His limit break. We'll talk about, I guess we, we can talk about limit breaks uh, in a bit, but his limit break is him transforming into different monsters, uh, which is neat. Yeah. Not but, I, yeah. I would, neat, but I wouldn't say it's very, it's not useful enough where I was tempted to use. I don't think I ever really used Vincent as cool as I thought he was. I've yeah, I've used Vincent just because I thought he was cool when I was a kid. I've since, again, there's like weird esoteric things that you can get into about how damage is calculated with each different ultimate weapon. And because of the way they calculate his, I don't find it very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just never use him. Um, but uh, I, I like him. I like him in concept. I think anything outside of the core game where they, you know, we get into compilation of Final Fantasy VII and we get into outside properties where it's more about him, immediately my eyes glaze over and I stop caring. Um, because again, I, I think he works much better as a question mark and as this just kind of dark, cool character who joins you. I don't need to, to hear his tragic backstory. Yeah, fair enough. And, uh, I, and I don't think we even will need to get in too deep into limit breaks, maybe just the concept of it um, before we get into the plot. Yeah, well, why don't we talk about limit breaks uh, at the very end of this? Because they're yeah. really functionally the only ways the characters are different. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But, but uh, our, tell you want to tell us about uh, Red 13 first? Yeah, Red 13. So our next two, final two, are kind of the more animalistic characters. Red 13. Oh my gosh, I completely forgot about Kate Sith because who gives a shit about I, Kate Sith? I often, I often. I completely I, forgot about Kate Sith. That just says a lot. I often play through the entire game with him. I have I had really? multiple end game parties with, I believe it's Ketchy, but I always call him Kate Sith as a kid as well. I'll probably call him Kate Sith, but I think technically it's Ketchy. Um, I, I don't know. Anyway, um, Red Red Thirteen is a member of a tribe of these uh, lion, like orange lion creatures, who are sentient uh, and very long aged. Um, they're very wise. Uh, they live in this place called Cosmo Canyon. They're kind of a Native American analog. I was just gonna say, very much the Native American. Story. Yeah, I'm really, really glad they went with. Uh, these creatures as the stand-in instead of a human Native American person. Yes. Because I feel like they really would have gotten into the weeds uh, in terms of representation and not doing a great job. Mm-hmm. But uh, we find him in the Shinra headquarters. He's being experimented on also by Hojo. Red 13 is only a name that is given to him by Hojo, the scientist. Uh, his actual name is Nanaki. Um, and he is the son of a uh, famous warrior, a disgraced warrior, he is kind of the stoic, uh, knowledgeable party member, mm-hmm. but they, they also reference how he's so young and naive about the world, even though he's 50 years old. So he, it's this kind of weird mis- mishmash of he's, he's, uh, the baby Yoda, I guess. Um, he's in the some ba- ways he's, 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 he exhibits some very wise 
he does no he absolutely does but then again it's the sprite work he has these like really cutesy animations where he'll like roll around or he'll like lick his paw and then you know when when we meet his grandfather and other people of his tribe they kind of comment on how he's the young whippersnapper when to you guys he's kind of the very grizzled wizened uh character yeah but uh, why don't you take the character I pretty much always play with, Ketchy? I actually literally can't because I forget everything about Kate Sith every fucking time I play this. So, yeah. So you meet Kate Sith at this amusement park called the Gold Saucer. Uh, he basically tells you, like, okay, I'm coming with you now. And you're like, all right. Um, he is a giant, uh, well, rather, he is a tiny, small, anthropomorphized cat. Um yes. But he's riding on top of a giant uh, stuffed or mechanical mog. Mechanical mog. Mechanical mog, which is like a version of a Moogle. Um, And later we find out, and we don't really know much about him. Um, He's kind of like quick-witted and, you know, like the funny one of the group, I guess. Uh, We find out later that he is all robot and he is being controlled remotely by a character named Reeves uh, from Shinra headquarters. I don't know how Reeves pulls this off, but I don't know. That's the one thing I I remember is that he's that Kate Seth is technically a traitor. He does betray them. We'll, we'll get to that when we get to the plot, but um, I always use him. His limit break is kind of fun. It's luck based. It's um, a roulette wheel. Um, and then it also becomes a dice roll. And then depending on the dice or the other way around a dice roll yeah. and then becomes a roulette wheel. And then things happen depending on the roulette wheel. He attacks with horns, um, which is kind of interesting. Also, I didn't mention red 13 attacks with uh, like his, his hair piece. Yes. Um, but yeah, I like Ketsith. I think he's really kind of goofy and charming looking. Um, but really his character makes no sense. No sense at all. Not worth remembering in my opinion. And I want—I would like to go on the the record to say that randomness in special attacks, uh, not not a fan generally. I I agree, especially in high stakes games. I think yes. in this game, I'm so comfortable playing it that no battle is ever really that perilous to me. So I think it just adds a little kind of bit of fun. Okay, but um, should we get to the the spicy meatball that is the plot? Yeah, how fast do you think we can get through this plot? I mean, just to, to preface, we're not going to go into every tiny little detail no, about the plot. No, There's no, too no. much. We'd be here forever. Uh, we'll give a very high-level overview. Yeah, it's going to be bullet points. If you forget anything, feel free to jump in, but it's going to be broad strokes. Um, and yeah, let's just jump in. So the game opens with a very famous scene uh, where very Cloud famous. is riding in on a train. Um, he kind of exits the train. And- Great music. Great music, great music, is met by Barrett. Um, he, we find out, Cloud has been hired to help this uh, eco-terrorist organization called Avalanche. They want to destroy a Shinra reactor. Um, we find out that the reactor is kind of sucking up the life force of the planet yes. called the life stream and converting it into, I always said Mako energy uh, I when I played too. this. I think it's Mako, but I'm just going to say Mako. Yeah, I believe it's Mako, but I, yeah, I never said Yeah, that. so uh, they successfully destroy this reactor. They travel back to the slums of District 7, where Barrett lives uh, with his adopted daughter, Marlene. They meet Tifa, or we meet Tifa, uh, who is Cloud's childhood friend, who is the mom of the group. 
we find out that Cloud and Tifa grew up in the same town together and that Tifa was the one who secured him this job. We're also introduced to Jesse, Biggs, and Wedge, who are just kind of the other members. And they blatant they, Star Wars references. Blatant Star Wars references. They mean nothing. They're pointless. The remake decides that they mean something and have a point, which <laughs> I disagree with. Um, they go on another mission to destroy another reactor. Yes. During that mission, Cloud is separated. Um, he falls um, from a very high scaffolding through uh, the roof of a dilapidated church in the slums uh, where he meets Ares, who, or Aerith, or Aerith, uh, or pick, oh, pick It's not poison. or, it's, it's, it's Aerith. Fine. Or I, I said I wasn't going to make a fuss about this. I, I lied. I did say I was going to make a fuss about it, so I'm yeah. making one. Make, make as big a fuss as you want. So you uh, meet Eris, uh, you meet her kind of adopted mom, or the person who's taking care Beautiful of her. Beautiful house, by the way. Some of them, like my favorite, like pre-rendered backgrounds in the game are of, of are like of the outside of that house with this like beautiful garden um, yeah yeah thank you for pointing that out because the flowers only grow in the church and by Eris's house uh they don't grow anywhere else the slums are very dark and very dirty uh we find out very quickly that Eris has this connection with the earth that things grow around her and she also tells cloud uh there's a short chase sequence with uh members of shinra she tells Cloud that they have been trying to kidnap her because of her kind of specialness. Why they have to try multiple times, I don't know, because it's pretty obvious where her house is, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, everyone kind of reunites um, and they decide to uh, go to rest. Oh, that's right. Eris does get kidnapped. She does. Everyone kind of uh, groups up and decides to go rescue her. So they decide to break into uh, Shinra Tower, the main headquarters, and kind of do a two birds, one stone. They're going to rescue Eris. They're going to see if they can deliver some kind of decisive blow to Shinra at the well, same time. I, I do need to say there's one important thing we missed. Before she gets captured, uh, Shinra is looking for Avalanche and does it commits a massive oh, act of terrorism. Oh, yes, yes, yes. They, they, so so the, the way the Midgar city is kind of organized is that there are plates. Uh, the slums are on the ground and there are plates very highly elevated above the, the, the slums and the plates are on which the um, rich and wealthy live. Um, and what it's and, a concept we've never seen in fiction before. Yeah. And instead of uh, attempting to, you know, expend resources to find avalanche, they decide to pick, you know, the sector they think they or know that they're in and destroy the plate above it. Um, which I don't know about you, that, that had a pretty big impact on me the first time I saw it. I was pretty blown away. They killed everyone in the slums, or mostly everyone in the slums. Some people um, uh, escape. Yeah, um, oh no, they killed Jesse and Biggs and Wedge. Oh, boo-hoo, okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> and a lot of other innocent people. And a lot of other innocent people. But the, the people you're supposed to care about are Jesse, Biggs, and Wedge, who I could not give a fuck about. Mm -hmm. uh, and when the remake happens and they try and give them characteristics, I'm like, there is a giant ticking clock above your head. I am not going to care about you whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't. Um, moving on. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we, uh, we find... Um... President Shinra murdered? Is that where we left off? Uh, well, so they've infiltrated the building. This is where they meet Red 13. They meet Professor Hojo, who is the mad scientist of the game. Um, they uh, Cloud finds this thing called Genova, which is a creepy floating head in a jar. He kind of has this weird like reaction to it. We, are, we kind of don't know why. But yes, they finally uh, are captured, but get the chance to 
uh, kind of confront President Shinra. Barrett has some very choice things to say about him. Uh, but then they got locked in prison uh, in the tower. And what happens? Uh, well, uh, the doors suddenly are unlocked. And there is what I thought was blood for my entire life until like four years ago. <laughs> Uh, there is like a giant streak of not blood that they follow all the way to the top floor where they find President Shinra murdered. And I should note that it is not blood. It is goo from Genova. I always thought it was blood. And I guess the goo from Genova makes sense. I they guess confirm mi- that in the remake. Well, I guess I guess a mixture of both makes sense. Either way, it looks I like blood. So, yeah. uh, President Shinra is very conspicuously impaled on a massive sword. Um, we will kind of discover the significance of that. Actually, now, because they say he was killed by Sephiroth. Yeah. But we will see Sephiroth wielding that sword uh, very, very soon. I guess he has extra because it's left here. Do you want to tell us first who Sephiroth is? No, because no. they they no 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 I don't because, <laughs> no no well because and they fuck they, all of you too We're well not they you they they kind of get to that uh, after okay. they leave the city so let's just wrap up the Midgar section here so uh, because the president is dead his son Rufus uh, flies in on a helicopter uh, Rufus gives this speech about how his dad kind of ruled one way. Um, by making sure people had power and, you know, the poor people were under control and the, you know, the people on the upper plates are rich. He says he's now going to rule with fear, with kind of an iron fist. Uh, You fight him and his pet dog creature with Cloud. uh, And Rufus is just a giant dick. Um, And this is kind of it for what we see of the Shinra people for a while. Shinra kind of remains this, uh, this force over the rest of the game. But they really only have major significance, you know, in Act One and Act Three. So yes. they'll be they'll be back in a big bad way later. But the plot kind of now shifts into like the hunt for Sephiroth for a while. Yep. Um, so you escape the city, uh, and this is where the game actually opens up. We've been only in Midgar this whole time, gameplay wise, and now we finally get this big giant world map. Final Fantasy games have had world maps from the beginning. But this is the first time we get a world map that is an actual full 3D with a yeah. horizon, with a big blue sky, with this beautiful swelling uh, like music that I've heard versions that are orchestral. Really incredible. Really, game, really quite a sight. And another one of the really effective things about this is the game really kind of sucks you into the Midgar life because so much of the early game is spent on it. And if you're just the first time playing this game, you're going to spend even more time. I mean, I, I when I recently went through... Granted, I was helped with the aid of the extremely glorious addition to these some of these uh, remasters and such. Um, the three times speed mode, I highly recommend it. I, I think all companies should remake their RPGs from the from a bygone era and add three times speed mode. It's it's fantastic. Anyway, you can get through Midgar pretty quickly if you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, you spend a lot of time there and you get very invested in the goings on there, and so you almost kind of forget that you're in a, a JRPG that massively expands its world at a certain point at this point and so when you when, I, I don't know about you but when i finally got out of midgar and saw how much of the game there was and essentially that you're basically just starting the game i was blown away well i think that experience was robbed from me because i had already seen um gameplay outside of midgar so for me playing through midgar i was kind of like okay when's it gonna happen when's it gonna happen i want to leave and see what's next i will say it was still 
absolutely uh, jaw-dropping. And yeah. just that feeling you get when now you're this tiny little guy on this big world map felt extremely good. It did feel like a big achievement. Right. And I should clarify, I mean, I wasn't, the first time I had experienced this, I was not playing myself, but I was very invested in watching and what was going on. Yeah, so the crew has escaped. Uh, they decide that they are going to go after Sephiroth, uh, and Red 13 decides to join them um, and says he's going to go to his home in Cosmo Canyon. So the team relocates to this town of Calm, um, which now we're moving away from Midgar. We're moving away from this very industrial setting. Calm is, and a lot of the towns we go to has this very like um, early industrial, like German kind of feeling to it. That's what like kind of the houses look like. It has like a cobblestone square. So we are no longer in like crazy techno industrial uh, right. aesthetic anymore. While we're there, uh, they go to an inn. Cloud kind of tells them his history with Sephiroth. So years ago, Cloud was a new recruit in Soldier, and he, along with Sephiroth, have been sent to investigate a goings-on and the local Mako reactor in the town that Cloud grew up in, which is uh, Nebel, Nebelheim, Nibelheim, Nibelheim, I believe. Nibelheim. Um, in this flashback, which is playable, which as a kid I, I thought was amazing because yeah. in other games and other stories, you kind of just see the flashback. You don't actually get to participate. So you get to control Sephiroth, who is uh, kind of the all-star, triple-A, uh, most dangerous person in Soldier. At this point in the story, he is a very dedicated soldier. He follows orders. Um, they send him to kind of do the jobs that other soldiers are not able to do. Uh, you get to play as him, which I thought was so cool when I was a kid. Yeah. He has this massive sword, uh, the Masamune, um, and he has a lot of really high-powered materia that you're not going to be able to get to until much later in the game. Mm -hmm. So that made me want to play as a kid quite a bit because I was like, wow, Sephiroth has Earth-3. I want to get Earth-3. Um, and it kind of gives you a taste of what's to come gameplay-wise. Yeah. So in the town, you encounter Tifa, uh, who you haven't seen since you left for Soldier. Uh, Tifa decides to lead you to the reactor. Uh, she's kind of a local guide and karate person in training, I guess. Yeah. Um, so they go to the they go to the Maker Reactor. Sephiroth finds something called the Genova Project. Uh, they decide to stay uh, after the monster is defeated in the Shinra Mansion, a mansion in the town which Shinra had been using. Um, Sephiroth becomes kind of obsessed uh, with the knowledge that he gains there. Uh, there was a professor named Professor Gast who kind of Hojo learned everything from. And day by day, Sephiroth kind of secludes himself in the basement and discovers more about his origins and discovers that uh, he is either infused or maybe like a failed clone of yeah. this Genova creature um, that they found um, whose cells are being injected into people to give them these kind of soldier-like superpowers. Yes, and I think that by not telling him this, uh, everyone or anyone who had this knowledge um, was robbing him of his birthright. Yeah, and he goes a little cuckoo bananas. Yes. Um, so you wake up to find the town uh, completely burning um, and a lot of the people dead. Uh, you see Sephiroth silhouetted in flames. Um, it's the big FMV. Probably most people, even who haven't played the game, have probably seen or seen Without pictures of. Uh, Cloud, swearing revenge, uh, decides to go confront him at the reactor uh, where Tifa is waiting. Uh, Tifa's master, 
question mark it's her master i guess or her father i can't or both have been murdered by sephiroth she decides to confront him and is cut uh with his sword uh cloud finds tifa again swears revenge and goes to confront sephiroth sephiroth um dispatches cloud fairly easily um or no cloud fights him off i can't even remember which is either way cloud and he kind of fight um, and Sephiroth, oh yeah, Sephiroth like flies away because they have him fly away sometimes. Yeah. I, I think it's just like him teleporting or something. something. But in the in the original game, it's him just like, zoop, he just like kind of flies away. So um, you you kind of exit this, this flashback uh, and everyone kind of has something to say. Tifa is kind of mysteriously quiet about it. Um, from then, the crew goes to Junon, which is a port city that Rufus Shinra is visiting, uh, the president. He uh, has, is going on this tour of the Shinra kind of world to announce himself and to kind of make his policies known. Um, there's like a big military parade that you kind of take part in. Uh, yeah. But the whole point of this city is to sneak onto a cargo ship bound for the Western continent. Um, Sephiroth uh, shows up on the ship, uh, kind of pulls his one move, which is kill everyone and um, leave like Genova like creatures behind. To yeah, so that's the thing, too. So there are these Genova boss fights that you get into, and it's kind of implied that Sephiroth has like left a piece of her to kind of grow in yes. the areas you find them. Uh, in the game, though, it's just kind of like this blob, and then it's this giant. 15 foot tall monster mm-hmm. um so that's not really uh explained but we'll just kind of go with it i'm kind of curious to see that isn't explained in some of these games some of these yeah. games. i'm kind of curious to see how like remake part two handles that once they get to kind of the genova boss fights but if they do yeah that was remake part two is just you getting to tune on uh, well you do you do fight uh, a piece of genova in the remake Okay, interesting. I mean, I, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so you kind of stop at Costa del Sol, which is this kind of nice resort town. Uh, there's really nothing of plot significance here, but later you can buy a condo there, uh, which I always do, even though it's kind of pointless, but uh, you get to stay there for free and it's kind of an inn. Yeah. Um, you travel uh, to the, oh, I should say you're being pursued this whole time by a group called the Turks who are Shinra's special agents. Uh, They kind of want to know what's going on with Sephiroth, but they're also very curious about Eris. So kind of along the way, you encounter them a couple of times. You go to Gold Saucer, which is the the kind of only amusement park in the world, located very curiously um, in this massive desert. Um, The only way to get there is by ferry. Um, And I can't remember, is this where you, uh, you do Barrett's backstory or is that after? I think so. It's at no, it's after. Yeah, it's well, after. you have you have to go there and then you have to leave and then you do right. Barrett's backstory right. and then you go back. Correct. So uh, you go to Gold Saucer and then you are arrested because Sephiroth does his thing where he kills everyone again, um, and you are thrown in jail at the bottom of Gold Saucer, which is this desert. It's at this jail that you find out that Barrett comes from a mining town where Shinra he was kind of one of the leaders along with this guy named Dine. Um, they basically signed away the rights to, to the mining uh, town so that Shinra could build a reactor there. Obviously, it goes very poorly um, because Shinra uh, are a bunch of dicks. Uh, and Barrett uh, 
and his friend Dine are, are shot. Dine, they're both shot in the hand. Dine seemingly falls to his death, but he is wound up in this prison. They both have gun hands, which is kind of fun. So that is why Barrett has a gun arm. That is where Marlene comes from. Marlene is Dine's uh, daughter. You have to get your materia back and escape the prison. Um, and Barrett has a one-on-one -on -one duel with Dine where he kills him. He sure does. Uh, from there, you travel to Cosmo Canyon. Uh, there is an optional spot on the way. Gongaga, Gonogaga. I don't. Remember. I wasn't even gonna bring that up. Gon -gaga. We don't. We don't even need to talk about All it. All we need to know is that Eris mentions that her ex-boyfriend lives there or had lived there. Um, she mentions him briefly once or twice, and that he was in Soldier. Um, you meet her mother, or uh, I'm sorry, the ex-boyfriend's mother. Uh, Gongaga is also this giant blasted out um, shell. Uh, there was a something went wrong with the maker reactor, uh, and it blew up. Uh, and it's again reinforcing that Shinra really just doesn't care about anyone. Uh, the group arrives in Cosmo Canyon, which is where uh, Red 13 is from. We found out his backstory. His name is Nanaki. Uh, his father was like supposedly a coward or tr like a traitor. Um, you go into this cave uh, where you find out that actually the reverse is true. He kind of sacrificed his life so that he could protect Cosmo Canyon. Um, so his family line is redeemed. While we're there, we meet his adopted grandfather, B Bugenhagen. Is that right? Something like that. Something That's like that. Who's like a kooky old man. He explains what the life stream is, which is kind of the life force of the whole planet. It's what all living things are made out of. It's what, you know, it's, it's the force. Kind of, it's the, it is, it's the force. Um, and that when people kind of screw with the life stream, bad things happen, which is uh, exactly what Shinra is doing. Planet is dying. The planet is dying and we have to do something about it. Um, so all along the way, we've seen uh, men in black, black cloaks uh, and they're talking about this kind of like reunion or that they need to find someone. Um, and you're like, okay, so file that in the back of your head. Um, we make it to Nibelheim, which is where Cloud is from. It has been fully rebuilt and seemingly no one remembers what happened there. The people in the town are not the people uh, who are murdered. Um, and we see more people in black robes. It's here where we can find uh, Vincent. Yes. I should mention that it's before we get to Junon that you can find Yuffie, but nothing really happens with her. Uh, yeah right now so I we, find we wouldn't go into the wutai side quest i don't know if there's really I, we don't really have to so uh sephiroth um goes to mount mount nebel um and there is rocket town where we meet sid sid's backstory is that he wanted to go into space with shinra's funding uh his assistant slash wife i guess um like yeah. made some minor not even mistake she found there was a mistake in the rocket um, and that if Sid took off, it would blow up and he would die. So she sabotages it to prevent the launch. Yep. Sid has sort of never forgiven her for this, even though she could very easily explain what happened, but they it's, don't. A, it's a little ridiculous. It's completely, un even as a kid, I was like, this. why is he so angry with her? Yeah, so you get Sid's airplane, the tiny Bronco, which allows you to fly over shallow areas of the ocean. Um, and so you get to uh, the Temple of the Ancients. Um, you are looking to find, uh, the black, or I'm sorry, the black material. Uh, you go, you, so you get to the Setra temple. Yes. The temple of the ancients. The temple of uh, the ancients. And uh, again, Sephiroth has left a trail of dead people. Uh, yeah. one of them is the leader of the Turks. He says, find Sephiroth and stop him. You fight your way through the temple. Um, and you get to the bottom where you find Sephiroth. 
who tells you his plan is to use the black materia, which is the materia of the temple, um, to call Meteor. Meteor has been a spell in other Final Fantasy games. Here it functions as a spell, but one you can never actually use. Um, this will call a massive giant meteor that will destroy the planet. His plan is to kind of cause such massive damage to the planet that he's going to crack it open like an egg uh, and suck that sweet, sweet life stream out of it to kind of become a god and either like take over the world or build his own world or travel to another world and do kind of the same thing, which is uh, sort of Genova's ultimate plan and or design. And to be a little bit more specific, the, the, the idea of the live stream is that when the planet is damaged, the live stream tries to repair that damage. And so what he wants to do, I believe, is you know, to have Meteor impact the Earth and then go to that site because the live stream will gather at that site to repair the planet. He will just instead like let the planet die and absorb all of the live stream that would be used to otherwise repair it. Right. So it's here that he uh, kind of leaves uh, and the party realizes that the entire temple is the black materia and that it is impossible to take because to do so would require you to shrink the temple um, down to materia size, which would crush whoever is inside. Yes. So um, Ketchi, being a, a robot, um, reveals himself to be a robot and a traitor, uh, but he decides he can no longer go along with Shinra's plan. He wants to stop Sephiroth, and so he agrees to sacrifice his robot body um, to produce the Black Materia. Yes. The Black Materia is created. Um, Cloud picks it up, but kind of goes cuckoo bananas. Um, he uh, hands it over willingly to Sephiroth, uh, and the party is left very confused as to why he's doing this. Cloud has had these weird like seizures, flashes, when he's around Genova, when he's around Sephiroth. Uh, so we know that there's something not quite right with Cloud. Mm -hmm. Cloud kind of reveals that he is not able to control himself sometimes. Um, and it's here that Ares leaves the party. Um, and travels to the Temple of the Ancients, or I'm sorry, the Forgotten City of the Ancients. So you travel to uh, like a archeological dig site that is run by yeah. people, I guess. You would think yeah. Shinra would be all over this, but they're not. Yeah, um, and she's essentially there because she's trying to pray for I what, what pray to the to the gods or pray, pray the planet. It's or she talks. Well, about we, she's asking the planet to like what to do essentially. Well, uh, so we later find out that the materia that she's wearing in her hair is the holy materia yes and i think what she's praying for is to like have the holy materia be infused right right and become strong enough to be able to block meteor yes so uh eris uh leaves her party but this time if you've done things right you can get her final limit break and use it and get for her like ultimate an hour for like an hour and get her ultimate weapon so if you get her ultimate weapon and you don't know what's coming, uh, that's kind of a hint. So you go to the City of the Ancients, uh, and I do want to camp out on this because I think it's a very, very, very cool design. Mm -hmm. I think the music is very cool. Yep. Uh, I think it does an excellent job of uh, that, that Vincent problem we were talking about earlier. We find out too much about Vincent, and especially in, in later games in this kind of multimedia franchise. Mm -hmm. I think you get just enough of the Ancients to where you yes. find this city and they're all these kind of corkscrew seashell houses and you get little bits and pieces here and there that Aerith tells you. And it's like just enough for them to be very tantalizing, but you, it's also not too much where 
you're kind of burdened down by their lore or you stop caring. I, I really think the ancients in this game strike that really perfect balance. And I think their, their capital city is very cool. Yeah. So cloud and party travel down. They see Aerith praying on this very, uh, suspiciously lit uh, altar that's going to imply <laughs> that something dramatic happens on it. So Cloud uh, goes to Aerith and tries to talk to her, but instead is kind of uh, taking control of. Gameplay-wise, I think the, they do this in a really cool way because you kind of get to control Cloud's movements with certain button presses, but kind of no matter what you press and no matter what you do, it results in Cloud taking his sword and almost killing Aerith. Uh, which is a fun, you know, meta way to show that Cloud is not in control. You, the player, are not even in control. Yep. Um, but Cloud does not go through with it. So instead, Sephiroth just drops from the rafters and straight up murders Aerith. Uh, and another legendary cutscene. Yeah, is. yeah. And I mean, characters dying in Final Fantasy games is nothing new. It always, it frequently happens. It's frequently very melodramatic. But I think the combination of the, the FMV, the music, uh, the dialogue, uh, it, it's really, it really is affecting. I think playing through this game as many times as I have, and even years later, I think this is still a very affecting scene. Yes. I think this, the sprite of Cloud kind of shaking Aerith and like, you know, kind of going, why, why? Yeah. Like, it's, it's still, you know, it gets, it gets to you. So Sephiroth kills her, um, seemingly to stop the only person who could stop him, and then does the thing where he flies away. Yep. Leaving a piece of uh, Genova, which you fight. Um, from there, Cloud uh, puts Aerith to rest um, in this pool of water in the ancient city. Again, beautiful FMV cutscene. Um, and so now the kind of the, the impetus of the, the plot is both to stop Sephiroth, which we have been before, but also to get revenge for Aerith. So the crew goes to basically the North Pole, um, yep. the icicle. Northern Inn. Crater. It's well, yeah, the Icicle Inn, which is kind of the only city uh, anywhere around, where we find um, uh, videos of Professor Gast and Eris's mother. We get a little more tidbits of the ancients, a little more tidbits about Genova. And then from there, uh, they go to the Northern Crater. The reason for being is we're finding more uh, cloaked men. We kind of realize that they are connected to Sephiroth and they want to go there for some reason. They have tattoos on their arms. And the last time a meteorite hit the planet, which was Genova, it was in the North Pole, the Northern Crater. So that is seemingly the place to be. Uh, the That's where all the meteors are hanging out. All the meteors are hanging out there. Um, we get to the Northern Crater. We find that the, the men in robes are kind of failed clones of Sephiroth. Yes. Um, and that each Sephiroth we've kind of met is implied to be one of these clones. Um, it is not until we get to the center of the Northern Crater that we realize the true Sephiroth that has kind of been controlling these incomplete clones uh, is kind of like encased in the Magisite there. And we, or, we I'm sorry, also, not Magisite. Material. We should also mention, if we if we didn't already, I apologize if you already did, that Sephiroth was created from Genova. I mean, I think we did talk about that, but we the assumption earlier in the game is that Genova is a um, a presence of good, like a part of the life stream, maybe, or like a like a. But it turns out that Genova was actually just kind of a alien creature that landed and I think maybe was even hostile to the planet and that yeah well then kind of captured and experimented on well and it's it's uh it's called a parasite multiple times oh right. so yes. from from what I understand from this game and maybe some of the other things go uh into it a little more in depth from what I understand Genova goes to a planet kind of sucks out all the life from it like 
transforms or becomes more powerful and then kind of moves on or uses the planet or the remnants of the planet as its next meteor and then goes onto another planet and repeats that cycle. Yes. Um, that's, that's kind of what I get out of it. So um, they fight uh, Genova death. Um, the party reclaims the black materia. Um, and once again, though, cloud is kind of taking control of, uh, he hands gives it right back over. He hands it right back over. Uh, from there, the party escapes, uh, but Cloud kind of falls into the live stream. Yes. Um, from there, we find out, let's see, what happens next? Uh, so because of because Cloud fell into the live stream, he now has Mako poisoning. Right. And everyone, so I, everyone else is captured by Shinra. Correct. Right. Yes, that's right. That's right. So the party wakes up and you now are in control of Tifa um, because everyone is locked up back in Junon, uh, the port city earlier controlled by Shinra. And it's been a few days and it is discovered that uh, there is a massive meteor that is now kind of hanging in the sky. And kind of everyone is freaking out, believing that the world is ending. Yes. Additionally, these giant creatures uh, called weapons have been kind of, uh, they're kind of like kaiju that have been rising out of the planet. They're, they're, and, they're essentially like a way, like, like a, how would you call them like weapons or not weapons? Or would you call them like machines that are meant to defend the planet? Yeah, they're like Godzillas that, uh, that come about whenever there's like a huge crisis that the planet is in. Yeah. So the crew is going to be put to death um, uh, for seemingly causing the meteor, but uh, you escape um, and you make your way to uh, the city of Medil where you find Cloud. Uh, Medil is like kind of a tropical, uh, almost like Vietnam, like Thailandish uh, village um, where you find Cloud who is suffering from Mako poisoning um, because he had fallen into the live stream. Yes. Um, after you uh, do some stuff where, oh, you get the huge materia. All you need to know is that yeah. there's this, these huge materia are on the planet. You go get them. Great. Yeah. We do a bunch of bull crap. And then really the next major thing, right, is that we find out the truth. So, yes, yeah, so you find out the truth about Cloud. Tifa goes into his mind. Um, and Tifa has, has been suspiciously silent during all of Cloud's kind of stories. We found out that actually Cloud was, was at uh, Nibelheim um, during the events, but he was not the soldier uh, that he told everyone he was. Yes. Um, that is a man named Zack, who turns out to be Ares' ex-boyfriend. Um, it was actually Zack who was doing all the things that you were playing uh, Cloud doing in the flashback. Yes. Cloud was there. He was a lowly, like the lowest uh, member, like an infantryman. He did uh, save T like try to save Tifa and try and confront Sephiroth. Um, but it was Zack that was kind of truly the hero. Um, we find out that Zack and Cloud were both experimented on in the Shinra mansion by Professor Gast. That is where Cloud gained his like Mako-infused power, not from being a soldier. And Cloud and Zack have kind of had their memories and identities kind of like spliced and like written over. Um, and so Zack kind of merged his identity with Zack's. Uh, escaped, uh, fought off some sh soldiers, Zack died, and Cloud kind of made his way to uh, Midgar with very kind of confused, limited memories. Um, and that's kind of where we find him near the beginning of the game. So uh, Shinra has kind of gotten themselves in a pickle. 
Um, there is uh, a weapon attacking. Uh, this is the diamond weapon. Um, and the party defeats it, which is kind of ridiculous because they're these two, you know, three tiny little guys against this giant kaiju. Mm -hmm. um, but later, the same thing will happen with some optional bosses. Uh, it's also at this point that we find, find out that uh, through Bugenhagen, that holy is the spell that can counter meteor. Um, we kind of find out that Aerith was, that was kind of her plan, was to pray to the live stream to have holy contract meteor. Yes. There is a giant cannon um, called the Sister Ray that was built in Junon. It has been moved to Midgar. Um, and this is where uh, kind of the Shinra stuff comes back into play. Shinra, yeah, the, big, the big bads kind of until the end where it's Sephiroth again. But their plan is to use a giant infusion of Mako energy to shoot a hole in the barrier Sephiroth has erected around the Northern Cave. Um, you fight your way to, uh, to, you fight your way to the sister Ray. uh, Rufus Shinra is killed when diamond weapon attacks seemingly, uh, we kind of go through, uh, the rest of our Shinra beats, the Turks show up for the final time, we fight Hojo, who is now like a Genova skin freak, um, and, uh, all that being said, the Shinra part of the story is kind of wrapped up, they kind of get what's coming to them, and they have now fortuitously blown a hole in the Northern Cave so that we can go stop Sephiroth. From here, you can kind of really do whatever you want in the world, which yeah. is immersion breaking from the point of view of, you know, like the world's about to end. Right. But uh, you can go finish off any side quest you want. You can go um, get any materia, uh, breed chocobos, any Play and all Any of, of the number of mini games that this game has to offer. Yeah, which are all pretty terrible. Um, how, however, uh, at this point, you also have the high wind, uh, which is Sid's airship. It's also been powered up to the max. Um, it has these giant thrusters on it. But when you are ready, uh, you enter the northern cave, which has a gameplay gimmick that I don't understand that is never done before or after. After it wouldn't make sense because the end, uh, which I don't get, which is where you get a save point. Yes. And it's you, so strange. Yeah. So the northern cave is kind of the biggest, most sprawling dungeon uh, you've been to. You can kind of pick your path to get to the bottom. There are some really cool areas in it. It's not all like frozen caves. There's some really like naturalistic uh, organic parts the kind yeah. of the further down you get, which is cool. But if you're playing this game for the first time and you don't know where to place a save point. You're probably you going to place it too early. You're right. probably going to place it too early. Uh, I know where to place it now. So I always place it right before Sephiroth. But yeah. it's just really, it's kind of a weird Thing. It's very strange. I don't. It, I think it would be a cool mechanic if they gave you one, but then the one by Sephiroth was just there. Yeah. It. Yeah. It's like just in case you need it. Um. Yeah. So anyway, strange. It's it's weird. It's just kind of a quirk. So you get to uh, the bottom of Northern Cave. It's kind of the swirling vortex of Lifestream. Um. You may be in the core of the planet. It's not totally clear, but you go down and you fight different incarnations of Sephiroth. Um, you actually first you fight your final version of Genova. She's kind of the final guardian. Uh, this is what I feel like is like the complete Genova before you've gotten these kind of like incomplete freaks. Yeah. This Genova is like a full kind of humanoid thing. Um, and then from there you get different incarnations of Sephiroth. The first Sephiroth fight has you splitting the team into three different groups. And then kind of how well one group does, you can jump to different groups. Yes. It's kind of it's kind of stupid. Uh, I've played the game before where I never level up any other people, and yep, you can kind of same. just you can kind of just power through this with one team. 
That's what I prefer to do. The final Sephiroth is Safer Sephiroth, which I believe is a mistranslation. I think he was supposed to be Seraph Sephiroth. I think that's right. Because he looks like an angel. He has like one arm as a wing. He is kind of a halo looking thing. This is where the great track uh, One Winged Angel plays. Um, one of the- many, many iconic, many iconic uh, tracks from this game. Yeah, so the party fights him. It's the final boss. Even even playing without trying to min-max, he's not really that hard. No. Um, I have played where I've gotten quadra cut uh, and then double ah, action materia and just go. cut him eight times and killed him immediately. Um, but like Knights of the Round. Or yeah. Knights of the Round will kill him in, in one hit. But you, you defeat him and then there is a final symbolic fight between him and Cloud where Cloud, whether he's earned it or not, um, powers up his limit and gets the move Omni Slash. There's another way of doing this where you let Sephiroth hit you and then you automatically counter and it kills him. It's way cooler to kill him with Omni Slash. (laughs) Way, way, way cooler. Really kind of anticlimactic. Yeah. So uh, Meteor comes because uh, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Uh, But just as Meteor is impacting the Earth, uh, the Holy Spell activates... um, you know, Aerith's prayer has been heard um, and the life stream kind of comes together to stop Meteor or destroy it. There is still some kind of residual damage, but the planet is saved. Um, and then we get a cut to 500 years later where Red 13 and two of his tribes, tribes creatures yeah, um, are kind of running uh, up like a steep hill and they turn and overlook and it is the ruins of Midgar that have been completely overgrown um, yeah. with kind of, of like greenery. with with greenery you know presupposing that human society has like collapsed or ended but either way the planet is safe yes so that was the plot well done <sighs> yeah you did it and uh, we left out so many subplots so many this is uh I, I was i was telling you before we recorded that no matter how many times i've played this game or read the plot summary and such like, i still forget stuff uh you know, and of this game, of many other JRPG plots, um, there's so, always so much uh, involved. It's one of like the things I find charming about this this like series and of JRPGs in general, but also one of the things I find frustrating. But you did a damn good job. Thanks for taking that on. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm gonna take a sip of water. You should uh, do that. While you tell me, uh, should we start with things that work or things that don't work? I think we should do. I, I'll just go through both of them for me, just give to give you a bit of a longer break. Um, I, I would, and I've kind of touched on some of this before. You know, things that I think work. I I, I like the pre-rendered backgrounds. I mean, again, the polygons are one thing that I think doesn't work. Um, but I do still think it has a little bit of charm to it. When I've gone back and replayed this game, revisited it. I found it very fun to play uh, some of these, these locations um, in the, in the, in the art style, you know, of the, the pre-rendered backgrounds, it's just iconic. I, I remember it very well. Um, I, I think I will always go back to it and look at it fondly. Um, the battle system is incredible. Um, you know, or maybe incredible is too glowing, but it's, it, it's, it's, it holds up. It isn't, I don't think it's very weak. There are certain elements of the battling that I don't like. It's just kind of quality of life things. Um, I don't like that you can't skip summon animations, um, especially if you're using ones like Knights of the Round that take forever. Um, granted, you know, having three times speed mode, another reason why that should always be a thing. It helps you s- skip past those annoying summons that you don't want to watch over and over and over again. Sometimes I think games should allow you to be able to skip repetitive things just to make 
the game move a little faster. Um, most of the other things that I think work about this game kind of get into some of my gushing about the legacy of this. Um, you know, it's been stated time and time again by people much more knowledgeable about game history um, and gaming than I, but this is an iconic game and it has influenced many people in our generation, millennial generation, and hopefully in the generation beyond ours. Um, this was an, an introduction to JRPGs, not, not completely for me, but one of the major things that got me into them. Um, the music, uh, this combined with kind of the likes of Mario 64, Banjo-Kazooie, and some of the other like, like music of that era spurred my love for video game music, um, especially JRPG and Final Fantasy music in particular. Um, you know, this the, the kind of style of the characters, um, you know, say what you will about how goofily some of these characters can be dressed, uh, even both games like this and even more so in games like Kingdom Hearts. I think that the character designs are nevertheless iconic and leave a lasting impression. And for every goofiness, um, and quite literally goofy in uh, Kingdom Hearts, there's something very cool about it, uh, about all this as well. And it's, it's just always stuck with me. This is, this is a game I will never forget. Um, it's a game that I'll probably be telling my children about whether or not they play it or not. Uh, and I think that there's just so much that contributes to that and what works so well that makes this worth playing. And I think that the things that don't work about it, like, you know, some of the graphical things, some of the, in the quality of life elements and some of the, you know, incoherent plot elements and, and, and ridiculous side quests or kind of, kind of lame video, lame mini games. I, I just don't think that it's, it's not nearly enough to detract me from recommending this to anybody. Yeah. And I also uh, think that this was a lot of people's first exposure to kind of Japanese media a lot. Like I've talked to people yeah, our age same. who, they say, you know, I this got in Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, this in Dragon Ball Z kind of, kind of got them into anime and kind of got them into that style uh, that otherwise they wouldn't have. Yeah, I will agree with you on uh, the, the art direction, the music, the things we've kind of gushed over already. Uh, I will say one of the things that doesn't work besides kind of the sprites, but I like the movement of the sprites. I just don't mm -hmm. like them uh, specifically. But one of the things that doesn't work, I don't think, especially uh, looking at games now, I think the pacing is kind of wonky. I think all of I think all of Midgar feels like a tight, self-contained story. But then you leave that, and then there's this whole open world, and then there's this long stretch in the middle where you get like little snippets of story, and you get like character introductions, and you get side quests and things like that. That flesh things out but it's kind of a journey uh, at yeah. that point it's it's not very story driven it's kind of like where can I go in the world what is there to do because a lot of these things that we mentioned were optional Wu-Tai was optional we didn't even talk about that Gon Gaga or whatever is optional you don't have to go there yep. Gold Saucer after you leave it you never have to go back but there's this long stretch in the middle where it's very story light and kind of just you you know romping around the world yes. and then it kind of the end kind of all gets crammed in together and then all of a sudden Shinra's back and like Shinra is like the big bad. And it feels like the, the, the last act is, is very compact. Um, and it, yeah, it just doesn't feel very evenly paced in that way. And I can see someone who, you know, maybe if they were to put this game down, they would put it down in that middle stretch because 
there's not a lot of moment to moment reasons to kind of keep going or keep doing what you're doing. It's kind of just like, okay, this big open world map and like, I'm just going to poke around and, and two part of the, the gameplay, which is, you know, a strength or a weakness, depending on how you look at it, there's really no great world mapping system. So if it says, you know, go to Sylph cave or whatever, or go to the Corel reactor, you're kind of just deposited out in the world and you have to find that yourself. Um, you're only maybe once or twice kind of given very vague directions how to get somewhere. So I think they really did want you to just explore the open world. And if you're the kind of person who you really just want to get to the next chunk of important story information, I can see that getting frustrating. Yeah, and I think that many other RPGs of this era suffer from that same problem. And arguably, even to this day, it's kind of a problem that's hard to solve because you you the pacing isn't always in it's it's in the player's control like the, the the ability to fly through the game and do some some games allow you to kind of play the story at your leisure they very clearly designate where to go especially more modern games and let you you know if you want to just fly through the story and then do all the side quests later on you can but in in this kind of era there were a lot of moments where either there were just kind of plot dumps with exploration in between and some of the exploration isn't just encouraged exploration it's like you have no idea where you're supposed to go Right. And I think it would have been that you get a tiny world map in the corner, but there's really nothing on it besides a dot where you are. I think a map that you could open or go to that would tell you like, here is Junon. And then that's up to you after you exit the cave, you know, like, do I want to go straight to Junon? I do because I want to like see what happens next with Sephiroth and the story. Yep. Or, you know, there's this Fort Condor. Do I want to go off the beaten path? Do I want to, you know, um, train up my characters? Do I want to search for different materia? You can do that. Um, But without being able to have a very specific map telling you where to go, you are just kind of left to wander. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I didn't mind when I was that age. I thought that was super cool as a kid, but I can definitely see someone today going back and playing this for the first time, that being a little bit frustrating. Yeah. And I and I'm I'm going to add to something that both works and doesn't work. Uh, we Wall Market. We didn't really talk about Wall Market. That's a section of Midgar. That's essentially like the Red Light District, or maybe it's kind of just like a it's a bar district that's coupled to the Red Light District. I think it's a really neat area, though it has some of the more like pro, some of the problematic elements of the game. Um, there's a lot of interesting things that happen there, um, including like a moment where. Tifa is made uh, is very sexualized and kind of threatened um, to be sexually assaulted, essentially. And you kind of and she seems a little helpless and you kind of help rescue her. It's a little bit of a problem. Um, The character of Don Corneo, who is kind of the the head of Wall Market and kind of the eyes and ears on the ground in the slums for Shinra is kind of not not a great character uh, choice. Um, I do think that some of improvements to this are made in the remake. And I was actually going to probably talk about the remake for a little bit um, in a second here. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, and there's also, you know, uh, if you want, you can, um, there can be a scene where Cloud I, presumably like has sex with 12 dudes at the same time. Oh, I wish. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I think all of that falls under the general cultural difference between us yes. and Japan. I think I agree. It's very problematic, but for some reason, Japanese culture, and you see this in anime all the time, a character who is like, Oh, look at me. I'm touching your boobs and you don't like it. Isn't that funny? Yeah. It's like, it's, no, it's that's very uncomfortable. It's not funny. 
Um, so I chalk that up to cultural uh, cultural differences. Yeah. Um, why don't we? Yeah. Why don't we talk about the remake now? I was because... just gonna do kind of like a quick like dump on it, and I mean that not fake, not literally, but I, I'm I'm gonna say some positive things and, and some negative, and uh, but I think overall my impression of the of the remake was that. Well, I should we, it. Sorry, to, sorry uh, to interrupt, yeah. but just to clarify, because people may have played the original game and not played the remake. Yeah. Uh, but it should just be known because I don't think this is very widely known if you're not very familiar with this. The remake really only covers the Midgar stuff. Yeah. And you said that Midgar seemed like a self-contained story and very yeah. clearly uh, Square agrees with you uh, and turned like a four hour element of Final Fantasy VII into an entire, you know, 30 hour game. And... There are a lot of interesting changes. Um, the battle system is different. It's more of a real-time battle system. It still has kind of the active time battle elements, but you can kind of pause games, the pause of the game to use attacks. You can equip action items to shortcut buttons. You can switch between characters during battle. I found the combat to be one of the best parts about the remake. Um, the realization of Midgar, I think, is fantastic. I felt very um, in, I was the word, uh, engrossed or whatever uh, by the world of Midgar. I thought it felt like a very real, very lived in place. Uh, and, a, you know, it made, you know, the fact that this entire game takes place in Midgar to be more tolerable. I think the graphics are incredible. Uh, I especially like the Wall Market segment, which is kind of why I brought up Wall Market. Um, it's really cool looking like bar town with some beautiful lights, um, you know, some back alleys and so it's just a very, really cool looking place. And just the, I will say that, you know, despite all of the remake shortcomings going through the areas that I know from the original game, kind of in this different 3d environment in the modern with modern day graphics was it, it, it stirred some feelings inside me. I, I'm not going to lie, especially some of the, you know, if you accompany that with the, some of the remade, uh, the remixed, um, rearranged music from the original, I think is very effective. Um, I think there's arguably better character development and make characters easier to relate to. Not all, but some, um, especially the main ones. I think Barrett is fantastic in the remake. I think Aerith is fantastic in the remake. I think Cloud is possibly more boring and lame in the remake. Um, but it's still better to hear him talk, I think, um, even if he's saying a lot of dumb shit. Uh, awful, repetitive side quests, especially you kind of, because this game takes place in Midgar and they're trying to turn it into an entire game, there's a lot of repetitive um, side quests and areas that you have to go through multiple times. And some of those areas that you do need to go through multiple times are very boring, generic sewers and subways and mines, very annoying. Well, and I think that's the, re like, I started to play the remake and I put it down and it was for that reason. Um, yeah. I, I was already done with Midgar after five hours in the first game. I just, I couldn't do more dingy sewers and dingy slum. Like I was, I was done with it. Fair enough. I, I would encourage you to, to, to finish it. And I would really like to know what you think of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's more to say about it. I don't want to, I don't want to go too long into it because we're not really covering that game. Uh, I just will note that uh, Nomura went apeshit, cuckoo bananas, extreme on this game and made a lot of changes to the plot that I am not happy with um, and that were kind of contributing to my overall negativity about the game, despite all the things that I really loved. Um, but yeah, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that in some other episode. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to go back and finish it up at some point. I think it's it's an important game to, to play through, if not uh, just to talk about. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is the part where we talk about the world. Uh, and, you know, if this game were a movie, well, it has been. It has um, been. How would that work? And so, would we want to see it? Not as, a, it? not as a 3D animated movie, because we've already got that in Advent Children. We won't say anything more about that. I'm just going to say that the one thing about Advent Children is it produced one of my single favorite, if not my favorite, arrangements of any JRPG piece of music ever. And that's the piano version of the battle theme of Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, that is pretty great. Um, I mean, some of the fight scenes are fun, but overall yeah. the movie is like, uh, yeah. there are better ways to spend your time. So it's really hard for me to wrap my head around casting like human actors as anime-like characters without it seeming just ridiculous. So I did not take this seriously at all. I tried to actually. I thought it'd be funny if I came in and took it very seriously. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to just give out joking answers, but I'm just going to say that I didn't put a deep, deep amount of thought into any of this because it's just anytime I pictured any human person as one of these characters, I just kind of laughed. Um, also, they're not technically adults and all the actors I like are too old to play these parts. So it's, uh, you know, it's not like I can pick like, I don't know like a ton of like kid actors. I don't know enough to cast this movie effectively. I feel like Dame Judi Dench would be a great Tifa. Well, of course. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, preferably if I had my way, uh, no name, no American actors that are that are well known or honest or even famous Japanese actors. Um, I don't want to really know what the cast is. Um, sometimes I find that to be better. Just clean slate it. Um, you know, maybe they'll be shitty. I don't know. Again, this is not something I want to see. I should preface by saying that. But here I'm going to rattle off some casting choices for you that I did in about 10 seconds. Yes, please. Cloud, Justin Chatwin from Ooh. Dragon Ball Evolution. I um, think I might. Well, I think I might have a better one than that. Don't. And but like my motivation for that, who gives a shit who plays Cloud? Not True. the most important part of the game. Tifa, Sofia Vergara. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, Kate Beckinsale or Zoe Saldana, I think would be cool. Uh, Aerith, as much as I love that character, I could not think of someone to play her, so I wrote Zoe? Question mark. I think I meant Zoe De Chanel uh not serious about that whatsoever and i think that would be terrible uh barrett anthony mackie um red 13 anthony circus or sorry, anthony circus andy circus using a deep voice or you gotta get you just use andy circus mocap and you have a deep voice like adam driver sterling k brown um vincent obviously uh like nearing 60 or 60 year old uh goth johnny depp Oh, yes. Uh, and then Sid is the only one I took seriously. And I, I, I want that to be uh, Bradley Cooper doing his Rocket Raccoon voice. Okay. Okay. I, I will definitely back you on Anthony Mackie as Barrett and Goth Johnny Depp as Vincent. 100%. I didn't do Yuffie either or, or Kate Sid. Cause, oh, okay. Yeah. That's fine. Um, uh, Cloud, here's what I have. After okay. seeing him as Ted Bundy, I'm going to go Zac Efron because <laughs> I feel because I feel like he has enough charisma to make Cloud interesting and watchable, but he can also do the dead shark eyes yeah. that Cloud needs. So I went with that. Um, okay. For Aerith, uh, the girl who plays Selena in the, or I should say woman, who plays Selena in the Netflix Selena, who I guess is apparently also on The Walking Dead. Uh, if you've seen Selena, she's delightful and bubbly and cutesy. And I think she would bring a ton to the role of Aerith. Okay. Um, for Tifa, uh, God, I had someone, but I can't remember. 
Zoe Saldana is fine. Uh, I did have for Sid, I thought a gruff Javier Bardem would be fun. I think that could work. Yeah, and then for Yuffie, uh, just uh, copy and paste uh, to still two-frame animations of Naruto. Sure. Um, and then Katsith could be um, literally a stuffed toy. Yeah, and, and uh, really, again, the only one I feel passionate about is Bradley Cooper, because I think I, when I saw like Bradley Cooper's uh, Rocket Raccoon voice for the first time, I think that that has always been the voice I pictured in my head when I played this game with Forsyth. Okay, I, I can see that. Well, who who are we thinking for Sephiroth? Oh my gosh, I didn't even I didn't even do it. You know, I, I, you know who I think would be great uh, is Ezra Miller. You know what? I could get behind that, especially once you've seen. Uh, we need to talk about. Yes, that. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. That that movie still haunts me. He's yeah. he's fantastic in it. I, I will say, you know, I, I thought it'd be really funny. What got me to on Adam Driver as a voice for Red 13 is I thought like a lot of people really pissed off like Star Wars fans that Adam Driver was cast as like the villain in the new Star Wars movies. I think it'd be hilarious if Adam Driver was cast as Sephiroth. That would piss people off so much, even if they people would already be pissed about a live action version of this movie. And then when they found out Adam Driver was cast as Sephiroth, I think they'd lose their minds even more, despite how good of an actor I think Adam Driver is. I agree. And now that you're saying that out loud, uh, let's throw Daisy Ridley in there as Tifa. Oh, God. No, no, I got to draw the line there. <laughs> um, would we want to live in this world? Um, I went back and forth on this. I think probably yes, as a middle class uh, person, uh, preferably outside of Midgar. I don't really want to get involved in the goings on of Midgar. I would like to kind of, you know, have means, but not not necessarily like a giant mansion necessarily. I'd like to be like a random bar owner with a nice house, maybe a house that looks like Aerith's house, a lot of big garden. Um, yeah but yeah but that's not you deciding whether one not you want to live in the final fantasy world that's just you living out the dream of being a barkeep and then <laughs> wanting, wanting to wanting to keep out any like plot involvement of any kind why why i mean why can't i why can't i live in the world and just not have it that's like saying like i mean what if i wanted to be a hobbit and live in hobbiton and not all the hobbits got involved in what was going on so like the scouring of the shire and uh true i'm gonna say no hard hard pass okay because there's really nowhere in the world you could go where shinra's like assholeness would not in some way affect you and that's what got me that's what almost got me to say no so i guess yeah and then you got like giant kaiju coming out and then there's this meteor and it's like the live stream is cool, but there's also monsters everywhere. Yeah. And there's no like big infrastructure system to travel from city to city. So you kind of have to gear up and hope you weren't murdered. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to say no. Okay. Yeah. I, I, and actually, I do think you've con- you convinced me. I mean, that it, it, meaning, you, you know, you cited the reasons why I would have would have said no. So yeah. All right. What do you have for me? Yeah, let's move on to my, my favorite segment, Fan Fiction <laughs> Corner. Uh, you know, do you think there's any fan fiction of Final Fantasy VII? I would say there's probably too much. There is yeah, there is too much. There is too much to go through. Um, I Fan fiction, notoriously, uh, is known for crossovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I played a fun game with myself where I typed Final Fantasy and fill-in-the-blank uh, franchise crossover fan fiction. Uh, and I tried to really stretch my limits and to think what would not exist, but almost everything I entered did exist. Okay. I could not find any Final Fantasy home improvement fan fiction crossover, 
but I was really keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, for that I was one. really, really, really hoping that that would exist. Oh yeah. So I do have a few that I just kind of like to, uh, to, to talk about. Sure. Um, got one what, that I'll do once you're done. It's, it's probably pretty lame compared to yours, but I'll still bring it up. Yeah. So, uh, one of them is, is a song slash poem. Uh, it's called the Phantom of the Opera, Aerith and Sephiroth. It's okay. by, it's by Zach Angajem 999. Um, and his profile picture is, I think a very drugged out Britney Spears, but I'm not sure. So this is a poem slash song that crosses over what I think are lyrics from the Phantom of the Opera uh, and Sephiroth and Aerith. Uh, And I'm just going to read a short snippet. Okay. My slash your spirit and your slash my past wrote the world's lines. The Phantom of the Opera is here inside your mind. In parentheses, he's there. The Phantom of the Opera. Beware the Phantom of the Opera. Sephiroth, the final fantasy I'm sure you knew that past and suffering. Aerith, buried both in you, both. Hidden labyrinths, the truth is blind. The phantom of the opera is there inside your mind. <laughs> um, so there does exist Phantom of the Opera, Final Fantasy VII crossover, obviously. Oh my gosh. So we have that one. Uh, we have this one, which I found very charming. Um, it's it's two chapters. It's called The Little Merman Named Zack. And it is the plot of The Little Mermaid. Okay. Um, only uh, replace Ariel with Zack and replace Eric with Cloud. Um, and then all of the other characters have been, re- all the other, you know, fun animal human characters have been replaced with, with Final Fantasy VII characters. Okay. So uh, Prince Eric's uh, butler is now Squall. Um, and Hojo is, I think, Ursula. <laughs> um, my favorite part is that it's really only two chapters, and basically none of the conflict of The Little Mermaid occurs, except for Zack and Cloud falling in love and winding up together at the end. So unlike a lot of fan fiction that bites off more than it can chew, this this gets what it wants done in two chapters, and, and it wraps it up, which I kind of find incredible. Yeah, I mean, why why belabor the point? Why, why belabor it? Um, there's a line that I love about land princes, um, and I want to see if I can find it. Uh, but but um, uh, yeah, someone tells Zach that he's not allowed to fall in love with land princes, uh, implying that he can only fall in love with sea princes, mm-hmm. which I suppose is both true and progressive on their part. <laughs> um, God, do I need to highlight these things? <laughs> Um, that's fine. Moving on. It, just know that he's not allowed to fall in love with, uh, with uh, land princes. Noted. Um, noted. Then we have Yuffie's Adventure in Wonderland. I don't know when I went. I don't know why I went down a Disney rabbit hole with this one, but uh, I just thought it was interesting. Okay. Um, also, I got all of these from a massive master list of uh, fan fiction crossovers after I got frustrated by uh, finding and not finding the ones I want. But uh, this is essentially, and it's not even uh, Alice in Wonderland. It is the 2010, specifically the 2010 Johnny Depp Disney adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. That's um, frustrating. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's very it really is. So um, uh, it, it's told from Yuffie's point of view. It is a first person narrative. She is ready to get married in Wutai, uh, but she does not want to get married. So she runs away and follows a rabbit and falls asleep. 
And where does she wind up? But Wonderland. But Johnny Depp's Wonderland. We should just say Johnny uh, Depp's one. Tim Tim, Tim Burton, Burton and Burton's Johnny Depp's Wonderland. Wonderland. So uh, all the characters. It's a hellscape. <laughs> it truly is. <laughs> so uh, all the characters have been replaced by their Final Fantasy counterparts, I guess. Okay. Uh, but they go by their own Alice in Wonderland names. So Tweedledee and Tweedledum are Reno and Rude. And Yuffie knows them as Reno and Rude, but they don't know themselves as Reno and Rude and insist on being called Tweedle and So Dumb. this is kind of, wait, no, I was about to say it's like Wizard of Oz, but Dorothy doesn't actually recognize the people from her town as the, these, as like Scarecrow and, and stuff, right? Yeah, well, I yeah, I, I, honest, I, I don't even like that movie, so we could move on. I don't know. Who uh, who do you think plays uh, the Mad Hatter? Um, if it's not Tim Allen, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> no, I, no, I mean in this crossover. <laughs> I, I still want to go with Tim Allen. No, I know what you meant. I just I couldn't get the idea of a Final Fantasy VII home improvement crossover out of my head. <sighs> uh, you know, it may, uh, Christopher Lee, uh, Johnny Depp. You know, probably Johnny Depp. No, no, no. Within the cast of Final Fantasy VII. Oh, within the cast. Yes, no. I thought like they were, I don't know. These fan fictions are so off the fucking rails. Who knows what to predict anymore. <laughs> don't once, worry. Once don't you, worry. We're, we're going to get we're gonna get to one that kind of does Once that. you talked about Miles, uh, Tails, Prower in, uh, in Event Horizon fan fiction, I think you might have broken me. Oh, don't, um, don't worry. We'll get to one just like that. Um, uh, would it be the Mad Hatter? Uh, Hojo? Vincent. Oh, Vincent. Okay, Vincent. you're right. That makes so, more sense. Yeah, he, the, he is the most Johnny he, Depp like. He is the Johnny Depp standard. Hence so. why I cast him as Vincent. Yes, yes. So um, it just, uh, Ketchy is what the, the hair. Um, Red 13 and his pups are in the mix for reasons I'm not fully clear on. Okay. Um, so they talk about their names, right? Um, and everyone's like, you're not Yuffie, you're Alice. And then she'd be like, you're Ketchy. And he's, he's like, no, I'm not on the Dormouse. Uh, and every single character introduction is like that. Um, also, enragingly, and I don't think it's a typo because it happens multiple times. Um, instead of calling it Midgar, she calls it Midge. <laughs> okay. find vincent valentine and return to midge with him to see all of my friends and tell them all that has happened of course they will believe i fell and hit my head like the clumsy girl i am i replied they laughed you're a ninja you're not clumsy the whole point of your character is that you're not clumsy <laughs> anyway this is what vincent says slash the mad hatter this is true this is line for line vincent valentine what a funny name i've been on valentine's day people say something revering to his name cloud replied or i'm sorry it's cloud I placed a finger on my lips and thought about it. He was always annoyed during Valentine's Day when a few people walked up to him and talked about it. <laughs> which is, what? Which I, I don't know. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Like, I guess Cloud doesn't like Valentine's Day because he's really mopey. Yeah. But instead of saying like his true love is dead or like his past is a lie or something, he doesn't like it because a few people walk up to him and talk to him about it. I... I don't know. Um, yeah. So again, just like the Little Mermaid one, it manages to skip the entirety of the actual conflict. Um, there's like no war with the Red Queen. She's talked about. The White Queen is Aerith, of course. Um, and then it just gets to her waking up and she's back in Wutai. And now all of a sudden she she like learns her lesson. But for some reason, the Mad, Cat, the Mad Hatter, Vincent, is there. Uh -huh. And then they have tea. 
Um, and then it, it ends. What? It's very strange. It's very strange. I, as, as much as I, I, I wasn't a fan of the Tim Burton Wonderland style, I think it had so much promise uh, still, and it squandered it all. Yeah, and then we get to the one where uh, buckle up. Um, oh, okay. I'm sorry. There's two. Okay. Okay. This is, this is so so bizarre. Okay. <laughs> this is like uh, this is why I love fan fiction so much. <laughs> um, okay, so you know the movie Father of the Bride. Yes. <laughs> you're you aware, just, you're just, aware of the film Father of the Bride. Stop there and enough would be said. Okay, um, it is it is a crossover of Final Fantasy VII and Father of the Bride. <laughs> it is it is a one-shot, it is a short story, um, and it is where uh, I believe it's George, George Banks. Is that the guy's? I've actually never seen Father of the Bride. It's I been a while since it. I've seen it. So it is George Banks and his wife, I believe her name is Nina, and they are standing at the window uh, speculating about uh, the man that is coming home uh, to marry their daughter. And it's very like boring, like, really, George, what does he look like? I don't know. Yeah. He has something with him and now he's at the door. I can't see him from this angle. The chime of the doorbell ripple through the air. If we don't answer, maybe he'll think we're not home. It's very like a normal, safe, like family film, PG, boring. Like a, BB, like a BBC half. Like a, yeah, yeah. Who do you think is the, is the fiance? Cloud to marry Aerith? Nope. It's not even mentioned who the, who the fiance is. It's not even mentioned who the daughter is. Uh, that, that, you'll have to tell me. <laughs> Uh, it's Sephiroth. Oh my god! It's Sephiroth. It's... Why do Why do I try to bring any logic or reason to my guesses? There's just I should just guess the most absurd thing I could think of, which is why I guess Tim Allen is the Mad Hatter. I should have guessed Tim Allen for this too. I would have been closer. Okay, so uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read a little snippet. Okay, uh, this is Sephiroth. At any rate, we spent much of that gathering and subsequent ones speaking together. His tone went from light teasing to sincere. Your daughter has a gift in architecture that is very hard to come by. Nina and Annie, I thought it was George. Oh no, it's the, I'm sorry. The, the daughter of the bride, it's just the daughter. The only Final Fantasy VII character is Sephiroth. What? Oh, it's, so just, it's, it's just the movie it's Father just, of the Bride except the, the groom to be is Sephiroth. Yes, George had latched onto the Japanese comet because he's Japanese. The guy looked vaguely Asian, but his coloring and well over six foot height weren't typical of the people group. George was starting to have mental wow, flashes. How, how it's racist. In hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're getting there. George was starting to have mental flashes of Yakuza. What oh kind of company God. do you work for? I work for an electric company and it's an alternate energy one, dad. What's the sword for? Policy enforcement. How would he gotten that thing through customs? You work in security? Frequently, though not always, currently in tax with building renovations with a specific political group that will benefit our long-term plans. And then it just, it's this boring, like chit-chat, like coffee talk with Sephiroth and the cast of Father of the Bride. Is it, is it mostly just Sephiroth by name? Is like a whole lot of Sephiroth's character re reference during that? I mean, yeah, like he has a sword and he's Japanese and he works for an electric company. But I mean, aside from that, like his past, none of that's well, like brought up. I, I'm like scrolling through this being like, okay, it's gonna be at the end and he's like, haha, and then cuts them all apart with the sword. No, it's just a, like a light like a meet and greet with the parents from father of the bride and then it ends uh -huh. 
Um, hmm. So then we get to the the one that just really um, this is something special, and it's okay. very long. It's very okay. long. It's about ten thousand words. Um, the category it's listed under as is at, uh, spiritual slash adventure. Okay. Uh, it is by Triple X Double Edged Triple X thirteen thirty seven. Okay. Uh, and it is called Big Trouble in the Gunshine State, featuring Dante from Devil May Cry. That's the, the, the featuring is in the title? It is in the title. Okay. Uh, here, here is the synopsis. Get ready for an exciting adventure filled with football, hot steamy action, drugs, love, and lust. As Zach Thayer joins the Miami Hurricanes to win the Super Bowl, it won't come easy, and the repercussions go way beyond the game. Strap in, and this is all caps, get ready for some football. (laughs) It's so so strange. And it's it's not just a Final Fantasy VII crossover. It's everything. Like, let me me go to this one paragraph. Um, It's... It's it's bananas. Um, let's see, let's see. Um, I, I want to tell you who's in it, but I want to read like a paragraph where a bunch of them are featured, so you can kind of get a, a flavor for okay. for who's who's in this. Um, uh, I'm sorry, this does not make it for good radio. Um, okay, here we go. This this is a, a good enough one as any. Um, you guys are going down Riku from Kingdom Hearts Mm -hmm. added as they all look back at the petrified faces the players that look so cool in their little rap video give them the ball said Vice I don't know what Vice is from but it's spelled V-Y-S-E I don't either he grabbed the rough shoulders and then leaned back as if they were best friends at a bar we'll take that side at the kickoff Shadow the Hedgehog took the ball and run scared but a smart type of scare that got him upfield the problem was that he found himself behind Dante and across the wall of fat players protecting him was Barrett. He eyed that little hedgehog and said, you mine, fucker, you mine. Shadow was handed the ball and took it down the side, but met shoulders of big old Barrett. The Canes were dominating, but FSU was good enough to hang. Shadow could still break through the line, even meant getting hit by Barrett or Vice. Riku still had a good coverage down on Knuckles while also keeping a steady stream of ta- trash talk. The Seminoles were held to a field goal. Uh, on the came the Hurricanes offense and the Seminoles defense led by Naruto. What? So you want to know what my biggest question is from this is why is it featuring just Dante? He is by far, or not by far, he is one of the less interesting cameo characters in this cast. Why is Dante the one that's featured? Why, why is it not like featuring Shadow the Hedgehog? I don't know, but Rouge the Bat, Riku from Final Fantasy X make an appearance, and then and then Tom Brady, oh, and then that, actual the football, actual football that. player Tom Brady is also in the mix. Of course, he probably wins too. Uh, no, no, th- this is a very anti-Patriots uh, story, and oh, Tom Brady, Tom Brady loses. Yeah, oh, okay. I, I don't think this person likes the the Falcon, or I'm sorry, uh, the Patriots. Oh. Uh, before I leave you, um, I'm just gonna. Or, <laughs> before you're, I leave, oh, just, oh my God! Also, I forgot the best part. Okay, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> it's so good. Okay, there the other video game, one of the many video game characters um, that's in this is Link. But the best part of all of it is that Link has Navi 
and he completes passes because he uses her Z targeting. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> How often do you use that one? Only on ones I've been Z targeting all night. Navi flew out and began hovering around Link's target. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Wait, I, I applaud that choice. I, and it would seem like it'd be very good to, or it'd be very easy for Link to be good at the game. By doing um, here, okay, here we go. Uh, this is really confusing because there's both Riku from Kingdom Hearts and Riku with two Ks from uh, Final Fantasy X. I think this is Riku with two Ks. Uh, it's spelled with two Ks. So I'm assuming it's female Riku, but it's very confusing. Okay. Meanwhile, Zack was at Riku's balcony smoking a blunt and holding an empty bottle of beer. Fireworks again lit up. And as he and Riku leaned over, rested and ready for the night they were about to have, wins meant sex, but a big win meant anal. So now we can imagine Zach smoking a blunt, planning on having anal sex with with Riku from Final Fantasy X. Um, this is what this is what fan fiction does. <sighs> I'm so happy. I just I love the idea of like Link Ming snap the ball <laughs> and using the cheat move of Z targeting. Right. I don't know why. I just love that. So. So here's here's mine. Uh, it, it, that was, was was that your last one? That was my last one. Mine is called uh, "When Final Fantasy VII Attacks!" Exclamation point. What happens when Final Fantasy characters go crazy? Uh, this isn't the horror or no, not horror. I read it as horror, humor and suspense category. It's only about five thousand words. Um, the entire premise of this is. One by one, the characters of Final Fantasy IX are attacked and like basically mugged and replaced by Final Fantasy VII characters who take their place in the Final Fantasy IX game because they are so egotistical and want and believe that they deserve to be in other games. So here's the first excerpt. This is, as you know, the, the character Zidane of uh, Final Fantasy VII. La, la, la. Zidane sang as he skipped down the hallway of the Prima Vista. He soon walked into the dark storeroom and the ship. Sure is dark, Zidane said to himself. Yes. Yes, it is. A strange, eerie voice answered from the darkness. Who's that? Zidane said, grabbing a nearby candle and holding it to his face. It's me. Cloud. A blonde, spiky-haired man said as he walked into the light. Hey, you shouldn't be in this game. You belong in part seven, Zidane angrily pointed out so they'd know they're in a video game. Uh, that wasn't written. I just added that. Uh, no, I belong in the spotlight. I am almighty, Cloud blurted, l- laughing evilly afterward. No, but this is my game, Zidane pouted. Not anymore, Cloud yelled. He took out his sword and slashed Zidane. Ah! Phase one of our plan is complete, Cloud said as he talked into a phone. Soon we will rule the Final Fantasy world. Mwahaha. Chapter two, Vivi gets knocked out by uh, Aerith. Okay, and, I, I would watch that fight. And, and, and I mean, it's not really a fight. Uh, she's like, I'm a flower girl. I'm going to take your role in this game. Uh, and then, but th- this is what's interesting. Um, once Aerith approaches Vivi, uh, this is what happens. A woman with a horribly disfigured face said oh, said walking into the open so all okay, right so Aerith is has a clone of herself with cracked teeth <laughs> and a clenched fist uh and they're both like holding flowers uh and then instead of actually giving Vivi the flowers they just conk them on the head knock them out ha ha phase two complete <laughs> 
So it's kind of, it, I, I looked at this as like kind of one of those like Ocean's Eleven getting the gang back together, but in order to do that, you have to knock out all the characters from the other game. I, I, I just, I stopped on this one because I just thought that was a really good representation of the, of some of the other ends of the absurdity of fan fiction. I love that. I just want to know who replaces Queena. Uh, want me to go find out? I didn't actually look, uh, but I can find out. Part of me wants to find out. The other part of me would rather drown myself in a toilet. Oh, so well, we, so it's, it's, it's your friend Kate Sith. Oh yeah, it makes a okay. lot of sense. They're, yeah. they're similarly stupid characters. Yeah, sort of. Uh, yeah. Um, they uh, essentially. Oh wait, I don't actually think Queena gets. It appears that Queena does not get uh, attacked or replaced. Kate Sith attempts to. And then Queena just says, I'm going to eat you. And then chases Kate Sith away. <sighs> All right. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah, we, 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 uh, we're, we're about ready to wrap things up. Um, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so that's Final Fantasy VII. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about it? Uh, no, I think enough of it has been said either by us or by other people. Okay. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, thank you for... Um, for listening to, to, to all of this. Uh, I know this is probably our longest episode um, yet, and we appreciate your patience. Yeah. Do we want to talk about what, what we've been uh, doing or do we want to save that for next week? No, no, we can talk about what we're doing. That was just my closer to the Final Fantasy VII discussion. Um, oh, no, I meant like us personally playing games, watching, etc. No, yeah, no, I, I, um, I was just about to go into that for myself. Um, so, yeah, I, I have been, um, I finished uh, Jujutsu Kaisen, uh, which is a fantastic anime i could not recommend it more it is already i mean it only it has the benefit of only having like 24 episodes so it's i guess there's time for it to blow it but i would already put that in my top probably four anime favorite anime already um i i'm I, i i think it's fantastic i've never been more um tempted to read a manga because i just really want to know what happens rather than wait for you know another year or more for the next season couldn't recommend it more um, other than that, I've just kind of been chipping away more Persona 5 uh, Strikers and um, enter the playing, kind of fueling more of my Enter the Gungeon addiction. How about you? Um, <clears throat> I recently started watching, I still have one episode left, um, Exterminate All the Brutes on HBO Max. Okay. <clears throat> I've never heard of it. Uh, it is a documentary based on a book of the same name that talks about colonialism um, and how colonialism kind of fucked up the world and all the genocides that occurred and how it's still affecting us today. Um, it is a very heavy watch, but it's it's very good. It's very well done. And okay. I think it's very important information. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, definitely get in the headspace uh, of that kind of thing before you sit down to watch it. But okay. uh, but good, good. Definitely worth, worth seeing. Nice. Video game wise, I've been continuing my Monster Hunter uh, streak. I've been playing Monster Hunter Stories on 3DS uh, in preparation for Monster Hunter Stories 2 that's coming out in July. Uh, and I've been playing Monster Hunter Rise, which is really, 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 really good. Nice. Um, yeah, so I uh, I kind of talked last week about what's good about that game. So it continues to be good. The quests aren't overly long. The combat is snappy and fun, and it is a joy to explore. Oh, a uh, inter- interesting tie that I read, and I, this is... I, I, I saw this very briefly, so you might have to confirm the accuracy of what I'm saying, but I believe that somebody, either somebody from Capcom 
who worked on the Monster Hunter series combat system advised the team that developed the combat system for the Final Fantasy VII remake or worked on it directly, or it was just influenced by it. But there was some, there was a tie I read between the two, which I found interesting. I, it could be right. I think it's Capcom. I thought it was the guy from Devil May Cry. Uh, who, who may have also worked on Monster Hunter. I, I, I think, know. I think, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, next week we are watching uh, a film. Yeah. We're going to watch uh, Porco Rosso, Studio Ghibli film. Yeah. I'm excited. I have not seen it before. I'm a big Ghibli fan. I've seen a lot of them, but not all of them. I'm very excited to hear what you think of it. Uh, yeah. You've seen it because you don't care about having new experiences. I, I don't. I'm not afraid of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. <laughs> what a great send off yeah well, that's about all see you uh, buggers later yeah uh thanks for listening <laughs> and tune in next time for some porco rosso talk all right aaron it's been a pleasure uh, as always james <laughs>